Hello and welcome back to The Crow and the Raven, a weekly podcast featuring two friends discussing various topics. Our last few episodes are available on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Prime Music, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and Spotify. We will be recording a new episode live every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, with episode going up on all the podcatchers Wednesday morning at 2 a.m. Eastern. We do have audience appreciation set up through Stripe on Anchor.fm if you'd like to support the podcast. Questions can be posted on our Spotify page for the podcast as well as on our Discord server. We'll do our very best to answer those questions towards the end of every podcast episode. So make sure to post those questions. And for our new audience members, I'm your resident Crow Isaiah. And I'm your resident Raven Charles. And today we will be discussing or telling each other as well as you, ghost stories. That's right. This t- today's up to no, tonight's episode is called Our Haunted Lives. And it's not necessarily just our lives, but the lives of humanity in general, right? Yeah. All right. So do our instead of doing our classic you go, no, you go. I figure we'd do a little googly googly to uh toss a coin so i called it last time you call it this time sir all right tells heads so i guess i have to go first all right you son of a all right (laughs) so my first one uh is one that i i remember distinctly like being just blown away by and also just kind of uh, fascinated by you know a morbid kind of like way um, because the movie it inspired scared the absolute crap out of me as a kid and uh, really as a teenager not so much a kid because I didn't get to see the initial release I was too young so I saw the re-release of it and I watched it in a theater and I walked into the movie going, oh, yeah, I remember this movie. Uh, this is the one where the little girl gets sucked into the TV, which hindsight being 2020 is called Poltergeist. That's not the movie that was playing. No, I walked into the re-released with extended and missing scenes for The Exorcist thinking I was walking into the Poltergeist as like a 10, like I think it was like 12 or 13 maybe. So it's kind of a big jolt to the system. You're not really expecting it. Uh, And I had never seen it before. So that film was uh, made in 1973, directed by William Friedkin. The film, which tells the story, for those that don't know, of a young girl who's possessed by a demonic force and uh, goes through all these trials and tribulations. Well, uh, it was a truly terrifying film experience. There were a lot of strange things that happened during the production of the movie and slightly after uh, people got hurt on the set. The woman, the actress that played the little, the girl in the in the movie had to be put in like a neck brace because she got whipped around so hard by a machine that went haywire. There was actually a uh, technician at the hospital because they wanted to make it as realistic as possible. So they used an actual technician for the spinal tap scene who actually knew how to use the machines 
that guy who is still in the film because they never took him out is a bona fide serial killer. They didn't know it at the time, but after they wrapped the movie, he ended up getting caught being a serial killer. So the whole, like everything around the movie just got really hinky. But what most people don't know is that a boy from the 1940s who is known by an alias Roland Doe is what inspired the movie. So in the late 1940s, I almost said 1400s, that would be way back. Uh, In the late 1940s, this 13-year-old boy was mourning the death of his aunt. The aunt had taught him about spiritualism and specifically, as was used in the film, excuse me, how to use a Ouija board. The family states that things started to get a little weird around the home after his beloved aunt had passed away. About nine years later, in 1949, the family starts reporting these strange noises, scratching sounds in the house. And at first, they, the, his mother actually believed the noises were absolutely connected to his aunt's death, which is kind of like a strange immediate jump. But uh, the family started trying to reach out to the spirits that they believed to be in the house, hoping they could reason with them and ask them to leave the home and to move on. This only made things worse. Roland started to claim that he could hear people walking in his room at night while he was trying to sleep, and his mother would find scratch marks on his mattress in the morning. Eventually, those same marks began to appear on his body in the middle of the night. Not knowing what else to do with this whole situation, they called a local minister and he wants to observe the boy overnight at the church. Once he does so, he immediately suggests that the family reach out to the Jesuits. They had recently converted to Catholicism and they wanted to have Roland baptized, but the young boy responded to the attempts at baptism with a strange unbridled rage that was completely opposite of the boy's normal state. Roland was even admitted to a hospital, a psychiatric hospital where a psychiatrist attempted to treat him, but was completely unsuccessful. (laughs) It should be noted with the mental health part that this is in 1949. So chances are not the best psychiatrist. Uh, Another priest who came in to help the family uh, is documented as being father William S. Bodard. At one point, this priest attempted to protect the young boy by stating blessings and putting a crucifix under his pillow. After leaving the boy to rest, the family had returned. All of the furniture was flipped over and the crucifix was moved to the end edge of the bed. Roland's mattress was shaking uncontrollably, which again, we actually do see parts of that in the film. Uh, they perform multiple ex- exorcisms on the boy, and the most famous one what was performed at the Georgetown University Hospital at the time a Jesuit institution. I think it might still be. Another took place at the Alexian, Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. While they were doing these exorcisms, he vomited, 
urinated, spit, and spoke in Latin. And remember this, he was 13 years old in the 40s. So now he's 22 years old. Um, he took to deep adult sanding voices that were unfamiliar. So I think he was still a boy at this point. It's kind of unclear, but they claim he was 13 in the 1940. Oh, 1940s overall. So in 1949, he was still 13. Sorry about that. Misread. Uh, thought it sounded weird. So they, he's speaking in an adult voice. That's unfamiliar. He's doing all this strange stuff. The final exorcism was conducted with the help of priests Walter Holleran and William Van Rue. At some point during the exorcism ritual, Roland got free of his bonds. Holleran's nose was broken. Uh, they claimed that they were successful in exorcising the demons, and this boy went on to live a completely normal life, which is why he still lives under the alias for terms of the story. However, Ooh. Excuse me. A couple of things I wanted to touch on. He broke the bones, broke the priest's nose, and the spitting is kind of glossed over at times. But the very unusual part of that was without hawking or doing any like regurgitation effort, he would spit at these priests with what they called perfect accuracy with his eyes tight shut, like to the point where you, you can see like um, the, the creases around the eyes and the furrowed brow, like his eyes were clenched completely shut. He would spin his head around spit and hit them dead in the face. And the spit was a thick green, which is why in the movie they use like pea soup to do that. Uh, and they exaggerated the amounts, but he would just spin his head around and hit them. He would speak in Latin, which this 13 year old boy had no idea how to speak Latin. It's a dead language. And at one point he even, uh, shortly after he broke the priest's nose, grabbed a piece on this, like this, um, in those old hospital beds, how they have like the metal siding. He ripped the thin metal siding off the bed and used it to cut one of the, uh, met the people that were at the exorcism in the shoulder with it and cut them so deep again, a 13 year old boy that the shoulder required extensive surgery and it still didn't, he did the priest did not have full use of the arm ever since. So he severely permanently injured someone at 13. Uh, they also claim that it took up to four or five grown men to hold him down at the age of 13. Um, it's a very They wrote a book on it. That's very much like play by play of the actual true exorcism that took place with this boy. Um, and then they also have the novel written by William Peter Blatty that of course became the motion picture where he turned the boy into a young girl and exaggerated uh, quite a few of the things that happened to make it more sensational. But the story itself is very, very crazy. And it, of course, as a lot of ghost stories do, begins with a child very attached to a family member. Family member dies and they use a Ouija board. 
you're going to see maybe not in the stories that we lay out tonight, but that is definitely a recurring theme, not just in life, but in like horror films and ghost stories of all kinds. But I figured it would make a very interesting opening. Yeah, that's, uh, I don't know about Peter Blatty's like, I didn't think his, he uh, made his, did you say he made his book sensationalized? Uh, yeah, William Peter, Peter Blatty's book, The Exorcist, was a novelization that was loosely based on this story, but he did change key things, like he changed the boy into a girl, completely uh, made it a different name, put it in, I believe, a different city at the time, and uh, some of this stuff was exaggerated to make it a little bit more sensational, like instead of him just spitting with unerring accuracy, it was like a huge torrent of green vomit, stuff like that. Right. Uh, I'm pretty sure like the spider walk down the stairs was gonna, another fabrication of his. I was going to say there's the, the father that was, or the, the priest that was in the, or the, the name of the father, the father mm-hmm. that was actually supposed to be portrayed in that. He has his own book written about what happened and everything. Yeah. And that is something definitely to check out if you've never checked that out before. I I, I read a um, I have a book somewhere in this house because uh, all my books are scattered right now. That's a collection of these stories. But the what I loved about that book is it was actually citing sources, and mm-hmm. they actually got to talk to uh, that priest about his book. And let him give them like excerpts and and things like that. So it was very well cited when I read that one, but I couldn't find the book. So I mean, that's kind of the thing, though, right? You have more, uh, you have more sources claiming to this thing to be true, and that makes the ghost stories that much more true to you, right? Right. I love that. Like, if if some like random Joe was like telling you a ghost story, like you'd be like, okay, all right. But if like somebody of authority, like a, a teacher or uh, mm-hmm. some sort of like intellectual or a police officer, they told you about their experience of something like that. And it's be like, Oh yeah. <laughs> it, it has a different weight when it's somebody that like has a lot to lose, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. By claiming something so extraordinary. And it's like, Look, like I'm a not saying me personally, but as an example, like somebody says, Oh, well, I'm an astrophysicist and uh yeah, I just bought this house and there's green slime that comes from the walls and a girl climbs out of the mirror and tries to scratch me while I'm sleeping, you'd be like, Uh, I wanna say you're full of crap, but at the same time, you're risking your entire career you spent right. twelve years building to say that. So I don't know how to feel right now. <laughs> yeah no exactly that like when you, it's exactly what you said if they have they ha- seem to have something larger to lose in life that's it's and they're telling this story and they're being like clear hey this is my name this is my experience this has happened and i'm pretty freaked out about it and it's like and you're like a psychologist <laughs> you I, I believe you 
so when something gets sensationalized like that, you know that it's like for I don't know clout, right? But very like, out, you, it very can be, very much can be, yeah. Yeah, but when you have like the actual like priest or somebody that of the family like actually writing the story and putting it out there, and they're like sitting there going, "Look, I don't want any like I don't want any attention. I just want you to have like the clear side of things that." like happened that without all the fluff and everything like that, then it's like, all right, well this, this is something to believe here. I mean, this is, and that's kind of what that, that whole story like feels like to me, like the Mm -hmm. whole exorcist story is like the movie was made to be as sensationalized as possible. People were walking out of the theaters there are people that couldn't make it even like halfway through the the movie. There were people that were making it halfway through the movie and having like heart palpitations, freaking mm-hmm. out, you know, they feel like they're sinning, all this stuff. And it, it was insane. It was like one of the biggest like walkouts on movies in the in history. Yeah, on the opening day, <laughs> since you're bringing that up, lines of the novel's fans stretched around city blocks in Chicago. Frustrated moviegoers used battering rams to gain entry through the double side doors of a theater. In Kansas City, police had to use tear gas to disperse an impatient crowd attempting to force their way into the cinema. Uh, Three major television networks covered stories uh, and footage of those events, uh, devoted almost 10 more minutes to the story, which for recurring news outlets is pretty big. Um, And there were even... uh, protests like demanding that it not be played at certain theaters. I believe that. I believe that very easily. I'm trying to find strange things. You got to think like the 70s, this movie was put out there, the 70s, 80s. Uh, yeah. And at its at its peak, that's when people were like sitting there, like thinking that these these movies are are bad. Like they weren't, they didn't have the greatest like, um, what do you call it? Uh, these scary movies, these horror movies, they didn't have like the nobody stood behind them except for the people that wanted the scares. Mm-hmm. And, so. And- like it says here, back in the day, people believed what they saw, and it was hard for them to see this film and not be like, "Is any of this not a hundred percent?" Like, right? The, yeah. The whole based on a true story, found footage thing hadn't been done. Hey, oh, can you even believe if like the Blair Witch or anything like that was put out back then, <sighs> or Paranormal Activity? People would be losing their minds because those <laughs> those actors were paid to like be like out of like uh social existence for like a month or two or something like that before like they even could come mm-hmm. back out. Yeah, and you think about like the War of the Worlds, right? When Ooh. that was first read over uh radio, because that's how you used to do plays and essentially TV shows, right? Before TV. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Bless you. <laughs> Right. So, excuse me. So there were people that based on the descriptions from a radio broadcast that said at the very beginning of the broadcast that it was fictional, 
uh, they thought water towers were alien spacecrafts and they were shooting their own town's water supply. Because they thought it was real. They made it so real, though. Even though they said it was fictional, um, Orson Welles was so well known for what he mm. did, though. Like that, that was another thing, though. It was a reputation. It was right. a reputation being put out there, and he was just doing his regular news broadcast. And though he said it was fictional, he did not say what was going to be fictional about it. And he just did his. They they were doing the whole dance as they were doing, you know, because that's what it was. They were doing like some sort of ball. And they were just including the orchestra so that we played out on the, the radio. And all of a sudden, everything was just like happening. All of a sudden, it was just boom. It was there. Everything was being attacked. Everybody was being attacked. All the, oh, my God. And it was so, it was so crazy because I remember listening to that original recording. Mm-hmm. I wasn't alive during the original recording. But right. I had a teacher, a social studies teacher, that um, shared it with our class. And that was when I really got into audio dramas and I, it was insane to me that like something like that was back then, because that's exactly what I listen to now when it comes to podcast horror stories. Yep. And and it's amazing too. It's like part of it that kind of makes sense is like back then you got all of your entertainment and all your news from the radio, right? For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, Say you're, you know, Joe Schmo, whoever, and you just got home from work and you miss the first 20 minutes of your favorite show and you run to the radio and turn it on. And the first thing you hear is flying saucers from out of space have just landed in Manhattan and are shooting down airplanes. You'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And they have all the sound effects of these things doing exactly what they're saying they're doing. Yeah. And then they're like, and we'll reach you back to your regular broadcast. And all of a sudden it's like dancing and music going again. And holy crap, man, it was so good. I would have loved to live at that time. But I mean, we say that, but if we went back and we lived during that time, there's a good chance that we would have believed it too. Well, that's if, what I'm know, saying though. Societal because. Impact. All right. So comparatively between now and then, like the. The being able to believe something, the mm. the uh, suspension of belief right. back then was so high because none of that was like ever around. Mm. Now it's just common day. So yeah, it's so it's, inundated. It's, yeah, it's so hard to like be scared of something now. It's so hard to find fear in something unless it's straight up real life like crime, which I also listen to, and that shit is scary shit when you think about like being parked out and just like a Walgreens parking lot having some like shady ass van pull up next to your car and just sit there. And you know that that's shady shit because somebody's going to jump out of there, snag you up, drive off and you're not never going to be seen again. Did I share that that video with you or is this just a weird coincidence right now? I don't remember you sharing a video with me of that. No. Cause today I literally saw this TikTok today. This uh, young woman was walking out of it was either CVS or Walgreens, but it was a drugstore. And she noticed a panel van parked right up next to her car. Like she would have to squeeze into her door to get in there. But the sliding door for them was on that same side. And she was parked in the under the shade of a tree. 
So where their car was because of the the black van that it was in the shade, you couldn't even see the sliding door from the doorway of the store. So she went back, got an employee to escort her to her car because she didn't feel safe. The moment she got into her car, the woman that helped walk her out stood by her car. The As soon as whoever was in that vehicle saw her successfully get into her vehicle with the witness there, they pulled out and drove off like a bat out of hell. Nothing saying that they 100% were going to do something, but... No, the way they treated that, the way those people in the van treated that is clear, clear, mm-hmm. clear that, that they planned something. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about, though. But I, I'm looking at our, our TikTok, Twitch, our TikTok chat right now. I'm not seeing that. Oh, just a I coincidence, know what, though. It's like, like you described know, it almost perfectly. It's like, there's no fucking way. What? I know what video you're talking about because I saw the same thing. If If you didn't send it to me or if I didn't send it to you. Um, I did see the same video, um, but that's that's a real thing. I yeah. hear that's a that is a common story too. Then that, that's fucking fucked up right there, saying that that's a common story among people that that's yeah. happened to them. That's yeah. fucked up right there, and that's that's the scary stuff. We can sit here and watch like ghost stories and everything on movies and be like, oh yeah, paranormal. That's that's crazy. That's creepy. But like the real scary stories are the the near chances of real life shit like that happening, kidnappings, murder, um, mm-hmm. fucking you know, I, nearly getting snatched, snatched up a kidnapping. I just started watching. I tried to watch it before and I was confused by it because of the way it, it's set up. <laughs> and then once I actually got to sit down and actually focus, I enjoy it. Uh, but I just started watching the Witcher really intently. And there's a good line that kind of describes what you're saying. He said, uh, there's a scene where they're they're like he's uh, Geralt is like uh, so what monster do you want me to kill? And the reply is the very worst kind, humans. <laughs> it's because we and are monsters. Oftentimes we're the very worst monsters, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, human beings at large, obviously. Uh, present company excluded, of course. But there's a a new trend as well. I saw that people that these men typically uh, that are doing those kinds of things have resulted to a new system with all of the uh, expanded exposure that their rings have uh, come under lately with uh, Epstein and uh, just Maxwell and all them uh, that they've been putting uh, zip ties on like the back um, windshield wiper or the uh, handle to the trunk of your car for like the Jeep that's on the side. Mm, you and I did a share a video about that, I think. Yeah, they're, they're putting those on to vehicles that they identify as having an occupant that is susceptible to being kidnapped and used for those yeah. purposes. Human trafficking, yeah. Yeah. That's fucking scary. And see, that's those even are, a thing. And those are the those are the stories that are going to scare us the most. Oh yeah. But that's, but that's what I'm saying though. Is like some of us do have that that ability to suspend belief and have these mo- mm-hmm. movies like Paranormal Activity crawl under our skin and everything. Mm-hmm. 
but back then, I mean, that was brand new. And so having that ability to suspend your belief to like sit there and believe that some girl was possessed by a demon and the devil is coming through her and all this, she's crawling upside down up the stairs and oh my God. And she's just standing there laughing while pissing on the floor and everything. Oh my mm-hmm. God. And just stuff like that, man. You don't, you don't come across scary stuff that really like shakes you to the core anymore, unless it's damn near snuff films. Right. And um, before, not to give us off this tangent and back onto another one, uh, but the, uh, to round out the exorcist one too, which is what I was saying is like, there's so many big coincidences on set, right? The first set of the film caught on fire and everything on that set, except for Reagan's room, which coincidentally is where most of the exorcism scenes are going to be shot. That was the only room that was still intact. The fire took out every room except for the demon's room. Because of that, shooting was delayed six weeks. So that was the first weird thing. Then when shooting one of the scenes in the film, Ellen got, uh, which is, I believe, the gir- the woman who played the girl, got severely injured due to the random malfunctioning of her harness, which is what I mentioned before. In that scene, she got pulled up too quickly and landed herself on her coccyx, which is your tailbone, with such a big impact, it caused permanent spinal injury. The screech you hear is real because that's the moment that she damaged her spine. Uh there were nine deaths, including two actors, Visaliki Malaroys and Jack McGowan, who were scripted to die in the film, also died in real life during the post-production stage of the film. Apart from that, seven other people associated with the cast and members of the crew died due to natural or unexplained causes before the film was ever released. Jason Miller, who played Father Karras in the film, was approached by a priest on the street. The priest gave him a medallion and said to him, quote, reveal the devil for the trickster that he is. He will seek retribution against you, or he will even try to stop what you were trying to do to unmask him. Before the film was ever released and before they knew he was going to play that role. Uh, Linda Blair uh, had a mental breakdown. Uh, the film was so intense and she had to be in that frame of mind, portray the character. All of that got her so much so that she, it was rumored she started to have nervous breakdowns during the filming. Um, the first time the film was screened in Rome, it was a theater located between two churches on the day of the screening, torrential rain and a lightning storm in the background created a haunting effect. And one of the 400-year-old crosses was struck by lightning and fell right into the middle of the piazza while they're showing The Exorcist. Uh, while writing the book, uh, the presence of the darkness was so strong that the writer, Blatty, while writing the book, experienced strange and supernatural activities, such as things randomly levitating in the air. Was it late-night writing stress? None of us can explain that, but if you see a pattern, does it mean something? And that's the last creepy factor in sh- filming and writing. But very strange that some of those things that occurred while trying to make this movie 
that, like you said, was like the first big, the devil is here thing. Yeah. Um, so off the top of my head, I think, I'd, so that movie in particular, the exorcist, um, came to be known as having a curse on it, even right. from like the, the sequels on after. Um, all those things that you were saying that was happening to all the cast members, all the crew and stuff like that just got labeled as a curse. And anybody that like worked on it had a cursed like existence for so long after the movie too. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say about it? I can't remember. Um, but it's, it's so insane that all that happened they're mm -hmm. on set. Um, and so many of those people didn't, didn't move on to better, like, despite how well the movie did in the box office. Mm -hmm. None of those, all, the m larger majority of those people never went on to, like, produce or commit or uh, accomplish anything bigger. Right. That was, like, their biggest thing. And then nothing afterwards very interesting um so since 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 you're on this movie thing right now mm -hmm. um i'm this isn't one of my ghost stories but you made me think of it because i was actually there's a there's a uh page that i want you to check out on youtube at some point which i'll i'll send you the link later or i'll send you one of the videos um and I was just watching the videos in the background. But one of them went over this uh, movie that was actually made in 1928. It's a film called Noah's Ark. Okay. And it was directed by Michael Curtis, uh, starred Dolores Costella, George O'Brien. Um, let's see, written by Daryl F. Zanuck. It's, it's Noah's Ark. But they were doing their own version of it. Is at the time, nineteen twenty-eight. It was like a. It was among the longer movie sets. It's, it was a, I think a two-hour movie for nineteen twenty-eight, which was huge. It was a big long movie. There are a lot of people complain about how long it is, and it was a hybrid movie. So there was, um, I don't know if you've seen a lot of the hybrid movies from the 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 twenties and thirties, no, where there's long portions where it's just like music um, laid over or laid behind the film so okay. that um, there's no like dialogue or anything. And then they'll interrupt and have a dialogue portion. And then it'll go back to basically silent filming with music laid over the, the track again. So it was, it was considered a hybrid movie, uh, part talkie. Um, but anyway, the whole thing is is like two hours long, um, and this. So here, I'm going to read this part here. This is on Wikipedia here. During the filming of the climactic flood scene, there's a big flood scene in there because obviously Noah's Ark. Right, right. There was six hundred thousand gallons of water used to do the flood scene. Um, and it was so overwhelming. They had people sitting in this water being poured down on them. It was so overwhelming that three extras drowned. One was so badly injured that his leg needed to be amputated. And a number 
of su- a number of people suffered broken limbs and other serious injuries, which led to implementation of stunt safety regulations the following year. Dolores Costello, uh, the, one of the bigger names, caught a severe case of pneumonia. 35 ambulances attended the wounded. Jesus. Portions of the movie were filmed at the Iverson Movie Ranch in Chatsworth, California. The location was incorporated into an iconic special effects shot that opens the film. The shot depicts the massive arc beached on the giant boulders of the movie ranch's uh, Garden of the Gods, which later would become famous for appearances in hundreds of movies, including John Ford's Stagecoach. So, I mean, this this was... Uh, so, the, the YouTube channel... It's that they would even try to do that in the 20s. So, they kept all the original film in there. They just cut the deaths out of the scene. So, when you if you ever sit down and watch this movie... All of the the injuries are happening as you see it. Right. The people that are drowning are drowning as you see it. All the all the reactions that are people that people are having to this water pouring down on them, this, all these gallons and gallons of water are real reactions. They they were unprepared. They didn't know that this was going to happen. These people literally suffered in front of the camera for this man's like vision of a film. That's so insane. <clears throat> Absolutely insane. So not a ghost story, but you're you're on oh. the lines of a of a cinematic film. And so I was like, well, this made me think of this other thing that I I mean you know, not to be that guy, but I wouldn't be surprised if that fucking director was haunted for the rest of his days. I'm I bet you he was. I bet you that ranch was haunted still because people died there. Dude this movie probably put a lot of energy out there that was no good for anybody. Yeah. I mean, like had they been completely informed and had they, you know, signed on for and been like, yeah, we know it's dangerous, but we're going to, you know, we believe in this and we believe in your vision and we want to do this And an accident happened. They died still tragic. still very tragic, but at the same time, like, okay, you, you understood the risk in body D. But to be completely like, oh, I'm going to be on this set as an extra and I'm just going to stand here and oh, my God, I'm dead. So that's another Holy thing, too. Fuck. That's another thing, actually, too, is that the the director, uh, when asked about after the filming was done and everything after the movie was produced, because the movie was still produced. Which is insane by itself. <clears throat> which so the director was asked about the things that happened, the people that were injured during the scene, people that died during this scene. And the director was like, while they had to know it was coming, that's what they signed on for. That was their job. He had no, he had zero remorse, man. Zero remorse. It's, 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 didn't feel bad about it at all. uh, I was watching, uh, hotel hell because it's fun. Um, and this woman, the, it was uh, two women, two sisters were running a hotel under the ground, basically. But the employees, like, uh, what's his name? Um, Gordon Ramsay is there. And he's telling them, like, this is your staff. The staff is complaining. Like, you need to listen to them because they're telling you what's wrong with this place. And they're getting paid, like, at the time, like, six seventy-five an hour to get shit on all day. And they're like, you don't listen to us. And she's like, well, you're welcome for the fucking job. 
like that same kind of mentality. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Just because somebody works for you doesn't mean they're less than human or, oh, they signed up to be in a water scene, so they knew they were going to die. What? Yeah, that's like, just because they signed a contract to like do a scene, to do a movie for you or whatever, does not mean that you get to treat them like complete and utter shit and just throw them under like the fucking bus. That is so insane. <coughs> so yeah, you just got me on that that whole kick. Um, that was I, I like I said I had seen that on a YouTube video of another YouTube channel that uh, does like weird and scary things from the past, and a lot of it is like real true things, and so that that was one of them. Well, while we're on this tangent of movies that probably created ghosts. Um, another one to look at is the conqueror starring, um, John Wayne. It's a film where, and yes, this was a real thing. They cast John Wayne to play, uh, Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, well, the well, that's a fifties movie. So yeah, they, they cast, they casted Russians to be Native American back then, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, even as recent as the uh, original Firestarter, they used, like, the whitest white guy and said he was a Native. Right. Fucking stupid. But uh, anyway, the the, the Conqueror, um, they record, they did all the filming on location. They had the actors sleep, eat, act, and ride horses through the very deserts they tested nuclear weapons in and told, and told all of them you'll be completely fine. There's no problem here whatsoever. And it is rumored to be the reason that John Wayne got cancer because of the people that worked on that film, something like 40% or something like that of the people that were in the film or on the site got cancer. And almost all of them got stomach cancer, which is what John Wayne had, which makes sense if radioactive isotopes are falling on your food. Right. So this um, story, Factor Faked Paranormal Files, decided to test the theory. And they dug, they they talked to radioactive experts and experts on uh, nuclear biological chemical weapons or seaburn. And they said there's an actual mathematical equation that you can do to determine how heavy the isotope was, the type of uh, material that you're, you're looking at with like what the ground's made out of and how long it would take that isotope to fall, how far in this based on how many years have passed to come up with an equation of how far down they would have to dig to find radioactive isotopes. If, in fact, radiation had ever been present present there. They dug down and the radioactive levels at that point, and this is like back in 2012 or so, and the film was recorded in the 50s, like you said, the radioactive levels were still high enough to cause extreme sickness with prolonged exposure. So only imagine that in 1950, those isotopes were at the top and were still as potent as the day they were created. 
and tell me people didn't get sick from that shit. So in the 50s, did they have the uh, anti-radiation pills yet? That might sound uh, like a stupid question, but I think they had something, but nothing that would have been quite effective. I mean, they were still discussing radiation in terms of sunshine units because they didn't want people to be afraid of radioactivity. And there's a little town which has been nicknamed Nuketown, just outside of the testing range. Um, that there is a DOD approved film that was given to those families that you can still go and find in the National Archives telling them when you hear the siren, meaning that we're going to do a nuclear test, close your doors and close your windows and you'll be a okay (laughs) against radiation falling on your town in record numbers. And then like down the line, something like 60 to 70% of the town is sterile or mutated. And uh, not that bad, but, you know, like um, extra f- born with extra fingers, like small. Def- I say small deformities compared to the hills have eyes. But the the most egregious being, you know, people are being sterilized against their will due to all this radiation and whatnot. And it got so bad that at some point, one of our presidents, I forget who, maybe Clinton, had to come out and apologize and give uh, authorize a. Uh, stipend to be paid to those families so they could get out of Nuketown. That's crazy. Like, it's insane. But, you know, just going off of the whole, like, if the if that shooting of that movie directly caused those deaths, which it looks like it did, is the land haunted, or did they just decide to haunt the people who made that shitty movie? But somebody's yeah. getting haunted. That's all I know. <laughs> Somebody is definitely getting haunted. When it's something like that, I mean, come on, there's got to be some sort of grudge held. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm the greatest Western actor of my generation, and you're going to make me eat radiation until I die? So I can make... play at being Genghis fucking Khan? That makes him the greatest... Uh... That makes him the greatest American actor. Just insane. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we should get back on topic, I think. Um, (laughs) Yeah, probably. We can at least try. All right, so what's your first uh, actual ghost story? Well, I found a little... I I like when it comes to ghost stories and stuff like that, I like fighting little personal accounts. Oh, yeah. Those feel like the, the best ones to me. So there are a lot of shorter ones, but... Oh, that's fine. All right. That one was pretty much my longest one. This one is called The Demon's Room. Bum, bum, bum. I worked as a forensic nurse in a hospital's lockup unit. We had one older lady who swore she was being haunted and abused by a demon she could call. She would call Tiberius. So many crazy things happened while she was on the unit. We'd go into the room, do normal care, leave, and seconds later she'd start screaming bloody murder. We'd run into the room to find her looking like she's been in a fight with a boxing champ. Bloody lip, black eye, markings all over her body. No one ever saw her doing this stuff to herself. Things would get moved around the room by themselves. At one point, she was in protective restraints because the doctor thought she was hurting herself. There was no way she could have moved or done anything to herself while in these restraints. 
but new marks would always appear or her tray cart would be across the room. The room was secure, so there was no way someone else was doing this. When we asked her questions, she'd just say, it was Tiberius. After she was discharged, we always had trouble with that room. If there was going to be a rapid response or code, it happened in that room. One night, a guard reported lights blinking on and off. It was that room. Ugh. No, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Some of those, like we've talked about kind of during like the mental health episode. And so some of those, those uh, mental old mental health institutional buildings, like in, even some of the really old prisons like Alcatraz just have that vibe. You can just feel the static of whatever you want to call it. Psychic energy, spiritual energy, just that, that oppressive static uh, pressure for lack of a better term. Yeah. I agree. So there's, there's always something inside those areas where you feel that like energy change, I think mm-hmm. at least if you're more in touch, like I, I know that not everybody's in touch with it and not everybody can cha- feel those changes and everything, but there are times when you walk into a room and you just kind of feel that, yeah, like feeling like something's off. There are, even though people aren't like, there are people that like aren't attuned or, you know, whatever is a, a better word for that. Um, I believe that, and just from personal experience as well, that the greater that pressure is, the lower the threshold becomes for being able to feel it or sense it. And yeah. like, there are some places where, you could be the kind of person that needs a, a, a ghost to literally like shove a, a spear through your heart before you even feel anything, you know, and you walk into some of these places and you're just like, I don't, I don't like this place. You have no idea why you just instantly, um, because that threshold is so low. There's so much there. Um, like I, I went to Fort Ontario for a ghost tour on the Canadian side. And even people that while we were walking up as a group, you know, cause you're all just random people meeting on the road, walking in. And then you get, you know, uh, you start being told what's going on and like, Oh, this is where the tour is going to go. Um, and walking in with people that were so sure this stuff was going to be fake that they were laughing about how, what a joke this place was. And, you know, yeah, I like doing this stuff because I like poking fun at it or, you know, I like to see what crazy nonsense they make up and kind of try to debunk it that, you know, they're just kind of there for the laughs. And then as soon as we got from the walking trail, like into the proper area, they were quiet the whole time. They didn't say a word. And on the way out, you go, so what'd you think? And they're just like, I've I've never felt anything like that. They're just like, there's something like, I didn't see anything. I don't see any ghosts. No, I, you know, I can't claim that I saw anything paranormal, but they're like, this is the one place I've been to where it's just like, can't explain the feeling. Just something was off. Yeah. Something was there. And it's like, when I was there, I had a friggin', there was a candle on the table in the briefing room. It was like the old, um, uh, DFAC basically the, the dining hall and they have yeah. all these little candles lit on the tables just to kind of build the ambiance. 
And as I'm standing there, my arm's starting to get warm. And I look down and the candle is vertical. The wick is vertical and the flame is at a 45 degree angle pointed right at me. Like just, just enough to make my arm warm, not enough to like even get close to burning it or anything. And I'm just watching it. And this guy next to me is like, the fuck is that? And then the, the woman giving the briefing, like I can hear her just kind of drift off and she looks over at me and she goes, up here, please. And I turn around and look at her. She's like, that happens all the time. Don't worry about it. I'm just like, what? <laughs> like none of the other, it's not like all there was a, it's not like there was a, a breeze and all the candles were tilting. You know what I mean? Right. Just this one flame. And then as soon as she said it happens all the time and I started listening to her again, it stood straight up. We all watched it just curve back into position. But I don't know. Maybe they had something under the table that was tilting the candle in a way that, you know, whatever. But it was just, I couldn't explain it at the time. And I was like weirded out by it. As a lot of people would be at that point, you know. But, you know, I, I also tend to believe in that stuff. But. So my next one is kind of feeding back into what you had brought up earlier about how when official people say something, it kind of gives you pause and you kind of think twice about it. Uh-huh. Uh, so this picture is taken by the Hammond Police Department. I'm posting that into the Discord now. Uh, in Indiana, they took a picture of the house, and the house was cleared before they took the picture. On the right-hand side, there's a figure in the window that they couldn't explain, which looks like the top half of a silhouette with a very skinny neck and sh- like tiny head. It almost looks like a a gun range target, so to speak, but they had Mm -hmm. cleared the house and there was nothing in the window. So they were kind of freaked out by that. But Latoya Amons from Indiana uh, claimed that her children were levitating, speaking in voices. Uh, They were walking up walls. um, That she herself was speaking in tongues at times. They had, been checked out by medical staff uh, because they observed that the children uh, were having, you know, marks on their bodies and things. Uh, The, when it came to exercise, the, the mother, um, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Sorry. So the part that's interesting, right? Well, one of the several parts, official reports, from 2012 from psychologists at the scene that treated them as well as Gary police captain, Charles Austin with more than 35 years of experience. Oh, bro. All wrote that they all saw a nine year old child speak in different deep voices, put his hands on the ground, walk backwards towards the wall, climb up the wall backwards flipped over his feet over his head and landed on his feet. That's in the official report. Mm-hmm. Um, they also noted, but the medical staff that were uh, observing the children heard the seven-year-old growling and that his eyes would roll into the back of his head. They observed, uh, one of the children being lifted and thrown into the wall with no one touching them. They state 
that uh, he would have a weird smile on his face, then charged at the grandmother's stomach and headbutted her several times until she grabbed his hands and started praying. Uh, at which point, a deep, different, deeper voice came from the child saying, quote, it's time to die. I will kill you. Um, another instance, he had the grin on his face, walked backwards while holding his grandmother's hand, walked up the wall backwards while holding her hand and would never let go and was dragging her up the wall. Uh, at which point, again, he would flip over, land on his feet in front of her and sit down in a chair, which is weird. Uh, Miss Amons saw her daughter levitate. She would be thrown across the room, grab, being grabbed by dark shadows. They thought that uh, the mother had, quote, mental health concerns. Uh, the three children were removed from the family home after the reports were filed. The A reverend carried out an exorcist on the mother and the children separately and he stated that, quote, whenever you would praise God in Latin, there would be no reaction. But if you started to condemn the demon or condemning any evil spirit, all of a sudden the child would begin reacting to it. And again, the only time that they would respond would be if he directly talked to the supposed demon. And even doing so in Latin, they would respond only if it was to the spirit, which is very, very strange. The children were returned six months later and there were no longer any issues with the mother or the children. There are now tenants in the property and the landlord has not received any further reports of demonic possession. Yeah, homie, this, this house is actually just like 20 minutes down the road from me. Oh, really? Yeah. This is, this is the, this is the big house. This is the big scary house that was going on for a long, long time. Zach Baggins bought this house. Yep. Didn't he um, end up breaking it apart and putting it in a storage unit because he didn't want anybody to be possessed or something? I think he tried lighting it on fire and it didn't work or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, he tried He tried taking it out so nobody had to deal with it anymore because uh, he... like. Every every tenant that had like you like what you were saying, um, there's there was a lot of people that had that stuff, like that lived in there, and uh, every tenant had something happen. The police department had things happen to them in there. Mm -hmm. uh, the priests had things that happened to them in there. The people that like what you were describing, all of that was happening at a hospital. Like to, yeah. nurses saw things happening. It's insane as to like the expanse of what happened with that house <clears throat> it yeah, says in bro that house is just down the road <laughs> yeah that's crazy i didn't even know that that was near you but uh yeah like you said 2014 ghost adventures host zach baggins or baggins however you say it uh he bought it for thirty five thousand uh, dollars and then he demolished it two years later um, but the, supposedly there's still mystery surrounding the area, even after its destruction. Uh, but basically he demolished it and put the pieces in a storage locker somewhere oh, to make okay. sure that nobody could, um, go in there anymore. He didn't want anybody else to have issues. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, uh, I'm pretty sure it's the area, not just the house. Um, the, the most activity, I think if I remember right, 
that took place with that house was in the basement. Everything led to the basement. So it's something with the ground. It isn't, it is, it wasn't something with the house. I believe it was something to do with the ground itself. So, right. And that does, you know, that, that has been witnessed in, in other cases as well. Like, um, the Amityville horror, despite the, um, kind of back and forth and strange things going on as far as like, what is the actual story there? Um, a lot of recanted testimonies and all this stuff, but, um, the initial report that, uh, Ronald DeFeo Jr. put out there was that it was the basement was the root of it. And even, um, what's her name? The, um, the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine mm. Warren, when they went yeah. in there, she said the same thing that the 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 basement, the land itself, the ground down there was like a portal or a vortex of some sort. Right. Yeah, it's uh so there's when it comes to that, I feel like um th- this is just my own personal like opinion. Um when it comes to like hauntings and stuff like that, if it's something to do with the house, I feel like it's almost always above ground. Right. Um, and people might argue, well, there are hauntings in basements and cellars and stuff like that because there are, there are people that are, that get killed and stuff like that in the basements and cellars. It's like, but that makes it part of the ground now. Right. Um, <coughs> yeah, it's part of the house, but it's also part of the ground. Right. You will always have a partial haunting to some degree. Even if you rid the, the grounds of that house, you will still have something there. You basically have to salt and burn the land. Right. Like once it gets into the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which. And, and I think people always miss that because um, as much as a house with sentimental emotion in it, can hold on to something like that. Um, the earth is very absorbable when it comes to that stuff. It, we, and I feel like people should understand that a bit better because we sit there and even in our dust to dust, we return back to the earth. People say we return back to the earth. So, I mean, we are a part of this planet. So when we get absorbed back into this ground, it seems to me to make sense that we are when we die, when we live, we are going to be living with this earth regardless. Yeah. And from a more scientific kind of approach, um, I find it very interesting sometimes how science and research and all those things kind of end up proving the old ways right in some ways mm-hmm. um case in point the indigenous people of australia have been claiming for centuries or decades whatever that um they've been there forever that their ancestors and their ancestors ancestors all the way back to the beginning had always been there and they're like, no, Australia is a prison colony and like 
at some point your ancestors were dropped here and they're like, no, there are indigenous people that have been here the whole time. They just found um, remains and artifacts throughout, I want to say like the Indonesian peninsulas, if that makes sense, but the area of Indonesia and Australia that is a new to us strain of homo sapiens or at least homo erectus that was previously undiscovered that proves that they were correct the entire time. And that yes, there were early uh, humanoids or humanids that inhabited Australia before documented history says they did. And one of those things in terms of ghosts and like the land being absorbed uh, with that absorbing quality um, we've been able to science, I should say has proven to a degree that certain minerals actually hold energy despite them not believing it in, in the past to a degree that it is theoretically at this point possible that if you have a large quartz deposit, which makes sense because we use quartz in our watches and technologies that if you have a large enough quartz concentration under your home and around your home, that those stones could in a high stress or dangerous situation or, you know, anything that would cause a lot of psychic energy. Of course, science doesn't use the term psychic energy, but that those quartz uh, minerals would absorb and replay if they were brought to the same frequency, the events that transpired. So when people say something like they have a reoccur, like a, a, a haunting where it's like they see or more uh, to the point here, like a specific sentence or a specific event. And it always happens at the same time every night or it happens at the same time every night when it happens, you know what I mean? But there's time in between. Yeah. That kind of a haunting scientifically can be explained away by it's not really a haunting, so to speak. It's a memory absorbed by the very minerals in the land replaying the sound that they were imprinted with when they were at that frequency and obtained it. And then whenever they're brought back to that frequency, natural or otherwise, that gets replayed, so to speak. Yeah, as an echo. Right. Now, the to the extent that science will say that it's possible and what kind of things will be ingrained is not as cut and dry as I'm making it sound. It's much more nuanced. I'm just trying to bring it down to normal people level is even like I had to have it explained like 15 times and I still don't quite get it. Um, but the where science draws the line is like, you won't hear like, you won't hear like, uh, come back to the well, Timmy. You might hear like a loud bang. That's like to the extent that they would admit it. But it is interesting that you can essentially program courts once you have it to a set frequency, 
which leads uh, gives credence to the idea that land itself, like you said, can absorb this energy, so to speak. Yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm kind of an old head when it comes to that stuff. Uh, it's it's almost like recording with a record, you know, the old exactly. wax records back in the day. I mean, they're not too far from that now with the vinyls, but like the old, you get a distorted version of what you were trying to record on the original wax uh, reels. And yeah. it never came out completely clear, right. but it was there. And so you see that kind of stuff with what you're talking about with the course and stuff like that. And it's there, but it's distorted because you can't completely and clearly always see it. Right. And with those, uh, speaking of spiritualism, like we did in one of the my previous stories, the those old wax things, wax records, they used to um, use those during spiritualism things to try and catch. They didn't have the term that we use for it today, but basically catch EVPs, oh, very yeah. primitive EVPs. So I mean, all the methods that they, that spirit chasers use now are ghost chasers ghost hunters, whatever you want to call them. All the, all the methods they use now were all old methods. They just improved on them. Absolutely. With like the EVPs trying to get like sounds, uh, this, the, what was it? Uh, the chatterbox or whatever it is. Yeah. The ghost box. where, yeah, where it flips through the different frequencies and stations. Yep. I mean, yep. all that stuff was, used to some degree just not with the more sophisticated refined means that we have now the only thing i hate with the ghost boxes <clears throat> is that because it's flipping through real frequencies like you would on an fm dial yeah the, the chances of you actually catching a random word from the actual airways of an actual station are pretty high so it's like I'd rather use the ones that like take out the white noise and they have like limiters set. So you can kind of limit the range of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're, you're almost like tuning the antenna like you did back in the day. Um, because they're the ones that just like, Oh yeah, just give me anything and everything that your little antenna can pick up period. I'm like, sometimes like it's pretty cut and dry and you're like, yeah, <clears throat> I, I can see why you would say that was a spirit, but sometimes it's like the, the voice comes through and it sounds like a disc jockey from like, you know, it's like, mm. well, that's, that's, I mean, but that's, I get that. Uh, that's how it works though. Is like, it's picking up on words that are already being put out into the world and it's pulling those and making them more clear out into you're the room or whatever you want to say. Right. But sometimes like if it's like, Hey, can you tell me your name? And it's like, Jimmy. like maybe uh, yeah, you know, that could be one. But then yeah. when it's like, what's your name? And it's like, it's Jimmy. Like, it sounds like it's pulling in a broadcast from fucking Boston. And you're like, mm, yeah, I don't know about that one. <clears throat> well, spirit box is one of the more, uh, fallible. Yeah methods of spirit uh ghost hunting so like the the one i used to use not a ghost box but a recorder it only recorded when it picked up audio 
So you could record for 12 hours. And if somebody only said Bob once, that was the only thing that recorded was somebody saying Bob. And it would, I don't know exactly how I would do it, but it would basically record three seconds before and after. So like it was always recording, but it was always deleting as it went, I guess is the best way to describe it. So Mm -hmm. once it detected a noise, it would save three before three after and capture the noise that was uh, brought out. That one was so much more reliable in my personal experience and opinion that like we tested it out. I tested it out extensively and it like you could put it on a dining room table, walk away. You would record your footsteps so you could you could actually hear your yourself walk away and you could whisper from another room. And it wouldn't pick it up. You would actually have to speak loud enough for your voice to, you know, hit that thing and you could set a threshold. So if it didn't hit it loud enough, it wouldn't even pick it up. So you could really isolate like, no, somebody has to be in this room for this thing to pick it up. So stuff like that to me is a little bit more reliable and believable, but I I tend to follow the mindset of if somebody tells you this place is haunted, like, I don't, if I'm going to be able to go to it, I don't want to know anything. Just tell me you think it's haunted End the discussion right there. That way I don't have any preconceived notions. I'm not going into it like, Oh, we got to check out the basement. 12 people got murked down there, you know, um, go into it completely blind almost because then you're not expecting anything. You're not, you know, you're not expecting the, a specific particular name or a particular event which could, you know, if you're going in there saying, I hope I get something about this event, you may end up thinking you hear things that you don't or, you know, putting that energy out there yourself. Um, Yeah, no, I I 100% agree with that too. And and I also fall into the mindset of if somebody says something's haunted, you go there with the intent to disprove it. So you try to find any explanation other than it being haunted And then if the evidence presented can have no other explanation, then you investigate it as a haunting. And what I mean by that is like people are saying that they're like seeing things. What if they're hallucinating? So do you check, you know, does this person have a mental illness? Are they being seen by a psychiatrist? Are they on medication? Like when I was on Ambien for sleep deprivation, I would hallucinate. And so I stopped taking Ambien, but some people might not realize that that's a a side effect. Right. So if they don't know that that's a side effect and they're seeing something in their house and they've been on Ambien for a long time, might want to look into that. Uh, Other people look at uh, electromagnetic interference, right? Uh, There was a, a case. I can't remember the, where it was off the top of my head, but it's one I like to bring up. These people were seeing things. They were hearing things. Things were getting thrown around the house, all this stuff. These guys went in with the same mindset that I had and they're like, okay, well let's try to find logical things first. And they found that they had uh, their gas pipes going throughout the house were old and there were several very, very small pinhole leaks 
that were causing them to inhale unhealthy levels of gas and the shielding from uh, certain appliances and uh, not appliances, but the shielding that's necessary to bring up to code for like um, electromagnetic shielding and all that weird shit um, was substandard. So they had a high EMI rate as well. So like it could just be a combination of your brain getting hit by these things. It's not supposed to have. And so they removed these people from the situation, got a contractor in there, fixed it all that while they were at the hotel, they didn't have any experiences run them back in the house and everything was fine. They didn't do any exorcisms, nothing. It was literally just, they were hallucinating from the gas and the EMI. Yeah. But I'm not saying that to say that all ghost stories are BS. It's just, I think it's, it's good to walk into them with a, a little grain of salt and go, okay, is there anything that could logically explain it first? If not, let's go from there. Like a kid walking up the wall backwards, the moment you see that, you go, yep, I'm done. That's, that's... No, no, I mean, what... That's haunted. They might, they just might just be on LSD, or they might be on... Maybe you're on LSD. <laughs> I, I'm saying no. there, there's a limit to my logic, but, you know... No, I, no I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. When you go into those situations, don't go in with any preconceived notions. Always relay your information or them have them relay their information after the fact because that way you guys can compare notes on a level of first encounters. Um, right. Even if nothing happens to you, um, you still have that open ability to make a judgment call without somebody else telling you, what they experienced, which makes you think you're going to experience the same thing. And it's exactly like you said, where it's like, if you go in there with knowing that this event happens there every night at nine o'clock, you're sitting there waiting at nine o'clock and it doesn't happen. And you're like, okay, well that's fucking bullshit. Or you're sitting there nine o'clock and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, I think I just heard it. I think I just heard it. Whereas it's just the maid next door cleaning out the next, you know, the closet. You don't know what's real and what's not unless you actually go in there blind, like what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, it's you like, have, to, um, have to have your own fresh experience. It, it's like when people see Jesus in the toast, right? The human mind, like will look at things and try to discern a pattern to try and make it make sense. And sometimes we'll see things that aren't there and you have to kind of step back and be like, okay, let's actually look at this thing. And you know, if you go in there, like you said, with that preconceived notion, sometimes you'll create that pattern in your own mind to force it into existence because you want it to happen. Let's not let's not bring the Jesus toast into this because Jesus <laughs> is obviously going to come back in the toast. That just makes more sense. Toast right. is the carpenter of all breads. <laughs> <laughs> He's in it for the toast. <laughs> All right, so what's your what's your next one, bud? I forgot we were doing stories. Yeah, uh, I know, right? <laughs> let's see. Okay. As I said before, in case uh, you and everybody else forgot that uh, the what we were doing, because I did. Um, I'm doing personal like these little stories that were put out there into the the void. 
personal experiences. So this one is called It Came For Us In The Graveyard. I just like that title. Right. We were driving my friend's really old beat up Subaru through a massive graveyard. We stopped and walked down a hill and came across a little pond. There was someone sitting on a rock on the other side of the pond. The figure was all black and we couldn't make out any features other than the fact that it looked like a man who was wearing some old style top hat. We stupidly waved and shouted hi. We didn't show any acknowledgement. He didn't show any acknowledgement and continued sitting still on the rock. All of a sudden he jumped to his feet, started running to us on the water and then vanished in thin in thin air about halfway on the pond. My friends and I screamed and ran back to the car. The car wouldn't start and we heard something banging on the back of the car. It wasn't a constant bang, but every few seconds or so we'd hear it. Nobody was outside from what we could see in the dark, but something was making a noise on the car. I opened my phone and started dialing my mom to come give us a boost, but I had no service. None of us had any cell service. The next 30 minutes were spent trying to get her car started. No banging was heard afterwards, but we felt this heavy pressure around us. Finally, the car started and she hit the pedal to the metal. We sped out of the graveyard so fast, immediately crossing the gates, all of our phones regained cell service. One thing I know for certain is that someone or something was out there, and it was not an animal or a human. <clears throat> so being an old head, an old head when it comes to like spiritual stuff and like all that stuff, um, graveyards are somewhere that you don't want to mess around. You, you hear a lot of, um, at least back when I was in high school, so there was uh, early 2000s, 2001, 2002. Uh, 2002 was when I graduated up until probably about 2006. A lot of the goth, goth culture, and I'm sure the goth culture is still out there doing the same thing, would hang out in graveyards and stuff like that. They'd get etchings of gravestones and stuff like that. Right. Um, and I know a few goths that when they do that stuff, they pay respect to the things around them in the graveyard. And that's good. Um, a lot of things I feel can attach to you. I'm a very spiritual person. If you haven't noticed yet, um, I am too. when it comes to the graveyard, a lot of things can attach themselves to you. Um, they can't possess you, but they can attach themselves to you, um, which can cause problems because then they're leaving where they are attached to. Uh, and, um, they're going somewhere where they don't belong. Right. Um, I don't know what this could have been, but I, I always have like, that's, that's one of my biggest, like someone, something I, just thinking about something jumping up and just like running at you. Yeah. Like that. Ha, have you ever seen those ghost videos where, um, they hear things running up and down the stairs yes. and like they're standing at the top of the stairs and all of a sudden they like, start, it starts running up the stairs at them and you can't see that shit. Dude, I'm like pissing my pants at that point. So they're going, Oh my God, run. Yeah. Those are the ones that always get me. Like I saw one and you know, you could fake them for sure. But the one that, one of the ones that got me is like, they heard, but it sounded like somebody knocking at the front door. They, and it's like one of those, like where they're uh, like a split level house, I guess you call it. They had to go yeah. like down the stairs a little bit and then you can see the front door and there's no one at the door. You can see through the glass. There's no one there. And they're like, what the fuck? 
and they walk back upstairs and you hear boom, 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 boom. And they turn around. There's nothing on the stairs, but you can still hear it running uh, up the rest of them. I'm like, fuck that. Right. Uh, <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to go into a quick little no, go, go, story go. then. So there was back in about 2000, I want to say 16, me and my wife were dis- discussing like divorce at the time. We actually got divorced in 2019, but in 2016 was the first time we actually discussed uh, divorce. But when that started happening, a lot of times um, I didn't sleep. That's when my insomnia really like, started to slide into my life. Right. So I didn't sleep a lot. So I was walking around at, late at night. So um, at the time near the apartment complex we lived at, there was this old like bridge. Um, it was it, It's just a regular concrete bridge. It wasn't like an old rickety wooden bridge or anything, but it was an old concrete bridge. And the thing about it was it it was in like pitch black okay there's there's no lights around it there's a light at one end of the bridge like maybe a good 30 feet at off one end of the bridge and there was another light that was even further out away from the bridge it wasn't a very long bridge it was probably a 50 foot long bridge <clears throat> but i remember one night I couldn't sleep, and those nights I would plug my headphones in, plug them into my phone, and I'd sit there and go for a walk. Every night I would walk up to the first light that was at the first end of the, the bridge, and I'd sit there and look at it, and it's just looking at the, the that bridge in the pitch black because you'd have the light, and all of a sudden it was just nothing. It was just void, basically. Mm-hmm. And I'd always sit there and go, ah, not tonight, not tonight. I'm not going to do it tonight. And one night I was just like, yeah, why not? So I walked across it and I went over to this, the next, next light on the other side of the bridge. And I was like, all right. Well, my daughter's like messaging me at the time and saying, going, where are you at daddy? Where are you at? And I was like, well, I'm just going for a walk. So I messaged her back and um, so I turned around and I started walking back and on my way back across the bridge to go back home, as soon as I hit where the light didn't touch anymore, I started hearing stuff over my headphones. Oof. Like I'm sitting here hearing like, uh, laughter and I'm starting to hear like footsteps, like, like right behind me. I'm just mm-hmm. going, what the fuck? So I take my headphones out. And there's nothing. I turn around and I look and there's nothing. And so I stick one headphone back in and I don't hear anything. And I'm still walking across this bridge. 50 foot long bridge. It's not that long, but it's long enough when you're just walking. Sure. So I'm like, all right, I don't hear anything. So just hearing things. Maybe it was the music I was listening to. So I put both headphones back in and I hear like this slow, like footstep behind me. Like, almost in time with my footsteps and all of a sudden I'm starting to get this like really as like the, that last story said this heavy pressure. I'm starting to feel like this feeling of like something's wrong here. Something feels off. And, uh, I take my headphones out one more time. I'll look out, look behind me. I'm looking off to the sides. I don't see anything. It's a bridge and it drops off probably a good 10 feet off into a creek 
I'm like, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. It's all right. So I put my headphones back in and I start walking one more time. I'm about halfway across the bridge at this point. Put my headphones back in. And I hear the laughter really start up in my my ears. And I hear right up behind me. I'm just like, don't turn around. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. Don't turn around. Just keep walking. And I'm like freaking <laughs> out. My body's like, I'm, I got goosebumps. And I'm just like walking. And there's like footsteps all around me laughing. And I'm just like walking, walking. And as soon as I hit that next light, it's gone. I'm just like. Never going across that bridge in the middle of the night again. <laughs> like, why didn't I listen to myself saying, not tonight, not tonight, not tonight. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I had one not quite as severe as that, um, but there's a an armory. I won't say who I was with at the time. for I don't want to represent an organization, but... Um, I was at the very famous, very old armory in Buffalo. And I had to use the, sh- the showers that the folks I was assigned with were supposed to use were downstairs, pretty much like basement bathrooms. And we're walking back up to the rooms and the guy I'm with, I'm like, do you hear that? He's like, yeah, their stairs are very old. So you'll hear them creak behind you a few steps as you're stepping on the ones above. And I'm like, that doesn't really make sense. Like, that's not how stairs really work. Yeah, that doesn't set right. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I've walked on crickety stairs. It's you put your weight on it. It goes, you take your weight off of it. And right. Then the next one creaks. I was like, so I was paying attention to it. And it would, you know, I was walking and I was like, I wonder, cause it, like as, as a point you'd hear like two steps behind you and you're like, I shouldn't hear anything after I stop kind of thing. So right. I went real slow. I moved one foot at a time, very slowly up four steps so slowly and like, trying to ease my weight that you could barely hear my steps creak. And then I still heard behind me, like two, two, three steps behind me. I'm like, yeah, that's not how stairs work. And just quickly all the way up the rest of the way. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to the shower point by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Not not here, man. No, not. No. Like it didn't feel like nefarious or heavy or that, you know, that staticky feel or anything like that. No pressure, but unsettling. I think, I think anytime that you can't see something, but you hear it moving around you, Mm. that's a very unsettling feeling. Yeah. You think you hear something else like walking around you, making like literal sounds of walking around you, but you can't see what, it is or who it is or how tall that thing is or how big it is or how small it is or how dangerous it could be. It's unsettling. Mm-hmm. So um, just real quick, because I don't want to be seen as talking out my butt. Uh, for those of you that don't have, that aren't on our discord server yet. Uh, 
I posted a, a link there uh, by Jim Shelton from Yale News, like Yale University. They tested a new device that uses sound waves to store information in pristine crystals, which includes. Um, uh, oh, come on. I just had it. Ah, there it is. Uh, the sound waves of, can be used in pristine crystals such as silicone, quartz, and sapphire. And those crystals in particular uh, can last, can hold the sound light waves much longer. So that's just a scientific way of saying that the pristine crystals like quartz can actually store information or echoes, if you will. Uh, depending on if they get back to that same frequency. So I just wanted to read that quickly so it doesn't just sound like woo-woo. So I want to say something about that real quick. Um, they're talking, scientists are talking about these crystals holding vibrations and sounds and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like all the people that they say is like all like crazy with the metaphysical like health stuff with crystals and wearing crystals and all that stuff. All those people, including me, sit there and say that you feel vibrations out of those crystals. You feel like that energy coming out of those crystals and stuff like that. And what is sound, but vibrations? Vibrations, right. Yep. But and then there's also like the science of um, s- vibrational sounds being used to help heal people's like brains and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And so it's like, there's something among those lines that is right. And scientists and metaphysical, like health gurus, stuff like that, like have to come together and like talk about this well, instead and, of being so separated. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was talking about before when I said it, it's funny how like emerging science kind of proves ancient things, right? Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You did bring that up. Yeah. You know, it it, it kind of like circles back a little bit. Not always, but it's like even the ancient, which we still have to do that episode too. But like the ancient Egyptians, um, them finding, or, you know, our scientists and archaeologists, archaeologists finding evidence that the ancient Egyptians had primitive but effective uh, surgical tools to remove cataracts from the eyes of their patients. Like that's mind blowing. That it's very mind blowing. Like, like that's a condition that, you know, I remember growing up, you know, conditions like glaucoma and cataracts were like, well, I guess we'll give them weed. Like, right. They didn't really know what to do. Well, I think glaucoma is still that way. Yeah. It's like, let's prescribe them weed, but. But cataracts, I think they've, they've got a, a thing for that. But uh, yeah. I could be mistaken. But I remember it was like, I guess we'll give you weed because we don't know what to do. Meanwhile, ancient Egyptians, oh, you've got that thingy. You've got the floater thingy in your eye. Yeah. Let me stick this very small needle attached to a straw. I'm going to poke it into your eyeball and suck that motherfucker out. Right. And it works. Ah. (laughs) It's, it is insane. 
because like it took us this long to like re- like get that technology back. We've had we we talked about that on an episode before, where it's like we see all this like old technology being used for these things that like we're having troubles with still now to this day, centuries later. And some and of, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say, and some of them were able to like look back and be like, "Oh, look, they had this shit like set already." Mm-hmm. Like, come on, man. <laughs> and, and some of them just make us look very dopey. Like we went, we had old wooden ships that had sails on them, and then we had, you know. Uh, ships that were powered by coal and then we have ships that are powered by gasoline and diesel propulsion right right then we have nuclear powered submarines and vessels and now they're talking i saw an article where they're using the water to like a, a almost like a jellyfish does you pull the water in through the front you expel it from the back that generates propulsion, but it also works like a dam, an electric dam. It generates that electric current based on the water moving through Mm -hmm. and uses the power of wind to further power the engines to propel it through the water. I'm like, so we're going, we're admitting that wooden ships were better (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Like uh, we we built all this shit just to be like, oh yeah, pirates had it right. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's a little more nuanced. Like we're doing more with the wind than they knew how to do, and the the water propulsion like a squid makes a lot of sense. Um, but it it's still just like we're using wind to propel ourselves through the water. We're using wind, air, water. <laughs> And going like, oh, look at this new idea we had. Yeah. Come on, Jack. That's been done a long time ago. All right. I think it's your story. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was, so the picture that I sent, I just want to say something real quick because I just noticed it before with it. I was looking at it blown up, which is why it looked all like out of proportion. If you look at it, as the thumbnail, like the smaller version in discord, you can clearly make out a head shoulders, pectoral muscles, and like a very defined, like curve of a bicep going into an arm. Almost like about the demon house. Yeah. Almost like the person standing at like a 45 degree angle, looking at you side, almost sideways, like where they're, they're not completely side face like uh, somebody using a, a rapier would stand, but they're not straight on. They're like at that weird, they're at like an angle, like a, they're flexing towards you. As if they're walking like by the window and decided to take a peek out there and they take a step to the side and like peek yeah. out there. And then, yeah, yeah. Like that's what it looks like. I was like, but when it's blown up, it's so like out of proportion and pixelated. I was like, oh, that looks weird. That's creepy. But anyway, uh, (laughs) (laughs) moving back to 1912 in a little house in Villisca, Iowa, has become a well-known tourist attraction for ghost hunters and horror lovers alike is the Villisca Axe Murder House. 
the site of a gruesome unsolved 1912 murder in which six children and two adults had their skulls completely crushed by the acts of an unknown perpetrator was purchased in 1994, restored to its original 1912 condition and converted into a tourist attraction. It will cost you just $428 a night to stay at the old haunted home where visitors always report strange paranormal experiences, such as visions of a man with an ax roaming the halls of the, and the faint screams of children. But in November of 2014, this haunting took a darker turn. Robert Stephen Lawrenson Jr., 37, of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, was on a regular recreational paranormal visit with his friends when true horror struck. Per Vice, which I'm assuming is Vice Magazine, his companions found him stabbed in the chest, an apparently self-inflicted wound, and called 911. Lawrenson was brought to a nearby hospital before being helicoptered to Crichton University Medical Center in Omaha. The Montgomery County Sheriff said that Lawrenson suffered the self-inflicted injury at about 12.45 a.m., which is the same time that the 1912 axe murders in the house began. Lawrenson recovered from his injuries, but has never spoken publicly about what occurred that day. But for Martha Lynn, who owns the home, the incident has been very upsetting. It's publicity, she says, but not exactly the kind of publicity you desire to have. I don't want people thinking that when they come to the Alexia Axe murder house, something's going to happen that's going to make them do something like that. The house remains open for tourist visits and overnight stays to this day. Article is from Esquire.com, written by Matt Miller and Lauren Crunk. So how do you feel about those kinds of houses where... There, it's like a mixture of a haunting and an echo because there's mm. always something that happens at a certain time, and it there's there's several houses that take this form. I yes. guess you could say where there is several murders in a past, and later in time somebody else moves in there, lives there for a time, and all of a sudden events seem to start to repeat themselves. How do you feel about that kind of thing? So we as human beings have long had the belief that history repeats itself, right? Right. So there's a lot that goes into that. Is it just, we forget our past. And so we make the same mistakes our ancestors did because we don't bother to learn the lesson. Maybe is it that there are such echoes in those places that the echoes themselves can influence our current thought patterns. And to that, I would say a strong possibility. And here's a kind of a breakdown of what I mean by that. So we've established through that Yale university thing and just the beliefs of many different peoples, myself and uh, Isaiah included in that, that there is something to crystals that they do hold sound waves that they can hold information. Now we also know that 
certain resonating frequencies will make people feel insanely uncomfortable, will make people want to leave a situation, or in the cases of the, uh, what's the name of it again? The Dietlov Pass, right? That supposedly the sound that is made by the high winds going through the, that area, which again, sound is just vibration, right? And frequency that that frequency and vibration can drive someone insane. Well, hypothetically speaking, what if a large amount of murders happened in one location like this house here, the echoes of which are in the stones, in the building, in the ground, and beacon out at a certain frequency. If you're predisposed to that frequency, you'll hear the sounds as reported, which are um, the faint screams of children. Or maybe if you're a little less attuned or a little more attuned, depending on you know how the frequency is working, you'll actually see the vision of the man with the ax or like the case of Mr. Lawrenson, perhaps, or Lorson, perhaps I'm not saying that definitively he's never made a statement, but perhaps he was of such a frequency because we've proven scientifically that every human body resonates on a certain frequency. Perhaps his frequency resonated so strongly with those echoes that he felt compelled to stab himself to recreate what happened in the house previously because he didn't have an axe, he had a knife, or just drove him mad, quote-unquote mad, to the point that he injured himself, or resonated so strongly with the frequency that it enabled the actual spirit of the murderer that is resonated there to be able to physically interact with his body. Any of those make sense to me, but the most logical one in my mind is that the, it's an echo and that echo because of the, is very, very strong because of all that psychic energy that's been released in this one space and it's not just any psychic energy. It's essentially the same type of psychic energy over and over and over and over. Because it wasn't one person that got killed. It wasn't two people that got killed, right? It was six children and two adults. Eight people, one after the other, killed in the exact same way. So you're having that same exact thing. Boom, 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 boom. If you think of each one as a pulse. It pulses out, it gets into the stone, the wood, the quartz, the land, and then another one, boom, of the exact same kind of thing. It's going to amplify the first signal. Then boom, it happens again. So we're having this one instance amplified seven more times. So that's a pretty strong resonance. Then those resonance that resonance is a frequency because that's what sound is a vibration on a certain frequency going out into the world every time just when it repeats. So 
if your body, as we know in science, scientifically, has its own frequency, what happens if your frequency coincides with the frequency of these echoes or of these haunted areas? That, you know, I don't have a definitive answer on, but my take on it would be depending on how close your your frequencies get, that's what your experience is. And for this unfortunate gentleman that got injured, I think his resonance was dangerously close to whatever that resonant frequency of this event, this eight, eight uh, the, what is it? Eight, the eight people that died, that repeating resonating event, um, whatever his body's frequency is, was dangerously close to it, which caused this to happen. That would just be my theory. What do you think the odds of that are that somebody moved in like decades later mm. had nearly the same frequency as the person who committed murders to eight people? Well, and again, it might not be that he is frequency is to the killer. It could be that his frequency is just to the event, right? Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it could just be the event itself is what's resonating there. And that frequency, if you're attuned to it, I'm saying that's why I'm saying like maybe you see, you hear the kids because you're attuned to the auditory frequency. Maybe you mm-hmm. see the visions of the man with the axe because you're attuned to the visual frequency. But what happens if you're attuned to the actual frequency of the event? Like if the frequency is one dot one dot two and you're one dot one dot one. Yeah. Pretty damn close. Like what would happen? It's just a theory, but yeah. I mean, that's all we got are theories. I yeah. was just asking. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I think that's in this instance, I think it would be, I would, cons- I would write that up as being more of an echo personally, because it's like you said, it's a repeating thing. They see a ro- a guy with a Roman around the halls with an ax or the screams of kids. It's always the same thing. And it's not like they're saying, oh, we're we're feeling an entity interacting with us directly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I, I would chalk that one up probably as an echo. There's a lot of uh a lot of stuff that surrounded that whole event. Yeah. There's a reverend that like actually uh confessed to the murders. Mm. Yeah, there's a, I'm not sure if it's that one, but there, I did hear another one of, I, I think it's a different one because I'm trying to remember it, but there was a famous axe murderer, uh, the jazz man, I want to say it was. The jazz man? I thought you were going to say, um, what's her name? Um, oh, Lizzie Borden? No. Yeah. No, it was like the jazz, I want to say it was the jazz man. I know I had some. The I, jazz man. I probably got his name wrong. Uh, his nomiker or moniker, should say wrong. But basically what he would do is, and he was actually featured in American Horror Story. Um, They embellished it a bit, of course. But he would break into people's sheds, grab their own axe. Because remember, you know, back then you had to cut your own firewood. And if they played music he didn't like or didn't play jazz, he would break in and kill them with their own axe. And... Like they just couldn't catch the guy. The jazz man. 
I'd like to think that after every murder he did, he did jazz hands. <laughs> Not to make light of, you know, murders, but yeah, they called him the, uh, the ax man because like jazz and ax, but it's the ax man of new Orleans. The ax man. And supposedly like he even, um, reached out to like local newspapers and was like, um, tell every post, you know, put an article in your paper to tell them to play this certain jazz song. And if I don't hear it, I'll go in their house and kill them. Oh, I was, uh, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. It was, uh, 1919 in new Orleans. I mean, that, when I was at the skating rink, when I was a kid, that's what I said. Like, if you don't play fucking, if you don't play me some boys to men, I'm going to fucking murder some people up in here. <laughs> yeah. And like he was from reading the, I just found the letter very well read and spoken. Like it's this, I'll just read part of it so you can get an idea. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans. They have never caught me and they were never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the ax man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone whom know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody ax disappeared with blood and brains of he whom I sent below to keep me company. And the part I'll skip forward to the part I was talking about now to be exact at 1215 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over new Orleans in my infinite mercy. I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not know, who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, We'll get the axe. Damn. But yeah, it's just like, what the hell? Like, yeah, no kidding. Most of the victims were Italian grocers attacked with their own axes. Uh, city. And there's even a um, hypothesis that the Axeman might not have existed at all, and it was just a marketer for jazz, but it seems a little out there. And uh, there are some experts like Miriam Davis who wrote The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, who thinks that the Axeman was not educated, was working class, probably a burglar. 
and that whoever wrote the letter was a liar and was educated, so it doesn't fit the profile. So the letter might have been marketing and the jazz man was real. Interesting, nonetheless, that somebody was terrorizing New Orleans and, from what I can tell, never got caught. New Orleans, New Orleans has seen a lot of shit. Yeah, New Orleans is weird, man. Um, so I just want to go over this real quick with yeah. the Villisca axe murders that you brought up. Um, there was a lot that went on around it, like around just investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, let me read a few of these things here. Yeah, uh, over time, many possible suspects emerged, including Reverend George Kelly. Frank F. Jones, William Mansfield, Loving Mitchell, Paul Mueller, and Henry Lee, Henry Lee Moore, with no relation to the Moore family. Kelly was tried twice for the murder. The first trial ended in a hung jury, while the second ended in acquittal. Other suspects in the investigation were also exonerated. The amount of suspects to, this, to these murders um, is huge. Uh, Andrew Sawyer, every transient and otherwise unaccounted for a stranger was a suspect in the murders. Andrew Sawyer was one of those people. He was interrogated, but not charged. And this is the thing about Reverend George Kelly. This is the thing, this is what I was saying earlier. Kelly was, Kelly was an English born traveling minister in town on the night of the murders. Kelly was described as peculiar, reportedly having suffered a mental breakdown as an adolescent. As an adult, he was accused of peeping and several times asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. On June 8, 1912, he came to Villisca to teach the Children's Day services, which the Moore family attended on June 9, 1912. He left town between 5 a.m. and 5.50 a.m. on June 10, 1912, hours before the bodies were discovered. Reverend Kelly had confessed to the murders in court, but the jury didn't believe his confession. In the weeks that followed, he displayed a fascination with the case and wrote many letters to the police, investigators, and family of the deceased. This aroused his suspicion, and a private investigator wrote back to Reverend Kelly asking for details that the minister might know about the murders. Kelly replied with great detail, claiming to have heard sounds and possibly witnessed the murders. His known mental illnesses made authorities question whether he knew the details because of having committed the murders or was imagining his account. <clears throat> uh, Frank F. Jones was a Villisca resident and Iowa State Senator. Josiah Moore had worked for Frank Jones at his implement store for many years before leaving to open his own store. Moore reportedly took business away from Jones, including a very successful John Deere dealership. Moore was rumored to have had a sexual affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, though no evidence supports this. Within Mansfield, another theory was that Senator Jones hired William Blackie Mansfield to murder the Moore family. Nine months before the murders at Villisca, a similar case of axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs. Uh, two axe murder cases followed the Ellsworth, Kansas, and Paola, Kansas. The cases were similar enough to raise the possibility of having been committed by the same person. Other murders reported as possibly being linked to these crimes include the numerous unsolved axe murder- murders along the Southern Pacific Railroad from 1911 to 1912, the unsolved axe man of New Orleans killings, as well as several other murders during this time period. The same, the, the guy you were just talking about. Yeah. <clears throat> The just the amount of like things that happened around the time of these murders is mm. uh, there's so much like you're what so the reason why I bring this up is because there was so much emotional energy, there was mm. so much energy like swirling around this event, this point in time 
that I could totally see that there was this huge echo being left there. This all this information being stored in the earth, the stones, all what we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. that makes it such a bigger event that it doesn't just include the house. I can see it including the town because it includes several people who also either weren't part of it, were a part of it, were witness to it, were trying to help in this situation. It, it was, it, it took place outside of the house also. So it's like, there's so much to it. And it's interesting too, that there seemed to have been around that time period, like you were saying, this almost national phenomena with, axes being used in this way. And it almost reminds me of a conversation we had a couple episodes ago of the uh, clown epidemic. We're just oh, yeah. out of nowhere. There is this strange obsession with or group mentality of, I need to dress up like a clown and stand out like a creeper and just stare at people. And it was crazy because it was, it was being reported in California and on the same night it was being reported like in Florida Yeah, and there was cases in Michigan. And, and I think it was the Florida one I'm thinking of, but I remember somebody caught it on like their, uh, their uh, ring camera and the guy was just standing on their porch for like three hours dressed up like yeah. a clown, like in the middle of the night, just standing, not walking around, just, just standing. Like yeah. you said, just it, it. I'm not sure what causes that, but it, it's almost like somebody. It could be monkey see, monkey do, because we're still pretty monkey like. Um, but it almost seems like if something is done with so much energy, that energy just like gets relayed like a bad signal you know what i mean it just pulses through the country and you see these this huge uptick in the activity and then it just disappears once the energy is dispersed it's weird kind of hard to describe what i mean but it just seems like it chain reacts throughout the country and then it just disappears and it's done i yeah no i i agree and um the sad thing is this year, what it seems to be is shootings. Yeah. Every morning when I come out of that freezer, there's a new shooting on the news broadcast. And it's insane to me to see the amount of shootings um, in public malls. And uh, it's the, the, the setting doesn't matter. It's just everywhere. Unfortunately, <clears throat> I mean... Guns can be its own episode too, but it. Uh, what's sad to me is it's like if it's an energy thing, like the axes or the clowns. Um, guns is probably the worst one it can ever be, <coughs> because. Uh, thank you. It happens with axes. Yeah, it's the it's scary. It happens with clowns. It's scary. Uh, it can be very 
um, detrimental to society. It can be extremely devastating to communities, families, and especially people that get injured or, or God forbid, killed. Um, but that sort of thing we're talking about where this negative energy radiates and spikes and causes a, a large number of these things sporadically around the country before dying out that happening with guns. We're talking exponential factors, right? Um, mm-hmm. 12 people hitting people with axes. They might get two or three at most eight, um, which in, in a very enclosed space like a home, you get a firearm involved, and now it's 45 in a matter of seconds. You know, it's so much worse. <clears throat> it is. So much worse. So I have one left that I really want to do. Did you have any you wanted to do? Because I think it's still your turn. Uh, well, I gave I did give an extra story of my own personal experience. So you do your you you go you go okay. ahead. Um, I'll do this one and then um, I already gave my personal one. Pretty good there. Um, this one, I they claim it's been solved. I wholeheartedly disagree, and I have my own theory. <clears throat> but it is a very infamous case from 2013, January 31st, Elisa Lamb. Oh, oh, yeah, just, uh, yep, go, go. <laughs> yeah, you know this one. I'm yep. posting the video <clears throat> in our Discord. You can kind of follow along. <clears throat> Excuse me. She was last seen on January 31st, 2013 in the lobby of the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. She was vacationing through the West Coast, documenting the trip of her blog, on her blog rather, and checking in with her parents every day. On January 31st, those calls stopped. Lisa, Elisa Lamb had vanished. Soon the police were involved and her parents arrived to help with the search. They had nothing. That February... LAPD released elevator surveillance footage of Lamb before her disappearance. The footage shows Lamb behaving strangely in the elevator, appearing to talk with invisible people, peering around the corner of the door, crouching in the corner and opening and closing the door. But what exactly is going on in this video raises more questions than it answers. Theories range from psychotic episodes, demonic possession, unknown assailants just out of the camera's view. Around that time, Hotel guests started reporting weird things happening with the Cecil Hotel water supply. As CNN reports, <clears throat> the shower was awful, said Sabina Bao, who spent eight days there during the investigation. When you turned on the tap, the water was coming out black at first for two seconds, and then it was going back to normal. The tap water tasted horrible, Bao said. It had a very funny, sweetie, disgusting taste. It was a very strange taste. I can barely describe it. But for a week, they never complained. We never thought anything of it, she said. We thought it just—it was just the way it was here. On the morning of February 19th, a hotel employee climbed to the roof and used a ladder to investigate the hotel's water storage tanks. That's where 
Authorities found the decomposing naked body of Lamb, whose personal items were found nearby. After an autopsy, the death was labeled accidental. NBC Los Angeles reported at the time about the strange circumstances in the hotel's past. The tank has a metal latch that can be opened, but authorities said access to the roof is secured with an alarm and a lock. The single-room occupancy hotel has an unusual history. Night stalker Richard Ramirez, who was found guilty of 14 slayings in the 80s, lived on the 14th floor for several months in 1985. International serial killer Jack Unterweger is suspected of murdering three prostitutes during the time that he lived there in 91, and he killed himself in jail in 94. In 1962, a female occupant jumped out of one of the hotel windows, killing herself and a pedestrian on whom she had landed. In February 2021, a Netflix documentary called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, explored Elisa's tragic case and the history of the quote-unquote cursed Cecil Hotel. Now, if you watch that video, which I'm going to start playing it, it's about 3.59, 3 minutes and 59 seconds long. You can see she does all of these strange things throughout the video. She comes in and out. She pokes her head around. She seems to push some of the elevator buttons, but the elevator never closes. And while she's in it, and then she gets out, the elevator door opens and closes a bunch. It's it's just very strange. Now, I'm trying to find the exact moment. But I watched that documentary that I talked about on on, uh, Netflix. And there's like one to three frames that I believe are very important. And really spell what happened. I'm just trying to find them. Now, they did say in the documentary that a lot of these clips that made it to the internet, um, which adds to my theory, which I'll get into here in a second, uh, have been tampered with by the hotel, is the allegation. And the reason they say that is if you look at the right-hand side of the elevator door looking specifically at the floor you can you can see the floor pattern gets very blurry on the right hand edge almost as if things were scrubbed like you can see lines are missing in the tile and whatnot mm-hmm. the date and time stamp is completely garbled and blacked over which you would never want to do from a security standpoint or even just a, Hey, I want to know what's going on in my hotel standpoint. Why would you ever black out, like screw up the date and the time to the point where it's unrecognizable? Like we already know what day this is because it's the day she goes missing. So why are you concealing the date and the time? It doesn't make any sense, but right. In the Netflix documentary, which I'm not seeing it in this clip, but I'm also trying to scrub through and it's only like a few frames. If you watch 
the right hand bottom right corner of the elevator. So at 140, she's hitting all of the buttons for some reason. And the elevator just won't shut. For whatever reason, this elevator is not shutting, which doesn't make any sense. Like the door isn't obstructed. It's almost as though she's trying to get to any floor and this thing won't run. And then shortly after that, at around 2.03, she's making very strange arm motions. But she's leaning forward almost like she's talking to somebody that we can't see, which is where people are like, oh, somebody else was there. But in the Netflix documentary, they clean this image up. And they got the full tape from the uh, hotel, which even from the point that the cops were investigating it, even police officers have said that they were very like the hotel made the investigation difficult when it didn't have to be. But there is a moment, just a few frames where a black boot can be seen entering the frame from off camera into the range of the elevator around the time she's making these weird movements. And then she goes back into the elevator and is never seen again. So there was definitely 100% someone else there. Now, this Cecil Hotel around this time period and even to today doesn't get the most reputable clientele, right? It's known for being kind of like, I mean, they had serial killers staying there, right? Like it's known to be that place where they don't ask questions, pay in cash, you get a room kind of places. And uh, very nearby is the infamous, um, what's the name of the infamous homeless uh, area in LA? Um, Tent City? Maybe. Or is it not Skid Row, is it? Um, Skid Row. Homeless area near Cecil Hotel. I just want to get the name of it right. Uh, uh, yeah, Skid Row. The area around the Cecil Hotel is called Skid Row, which is a 56-block area in downtown Los Angeles. Um which obviously has its own reputation, right? Looking that up. So in LA, the poverty on Skid Row defies defies the U.S.'s humane reputation. Uh, Skid Row is known, contains one of the largest stable populations of homeless people in the United States and has been known for its condensed homeless population since at least the 1930s and current uh, estimations to the population are 9,200 to 15,000 just in that small area, right? So looking at it from a historical perspective, there have been numerous confirmed cases of police officers and security personnel or people impersonating those personnel to target uh, the sex worker community and the homeless community 
when they delve into the area of serial killing, right? So isn't it possible that an individual like that stumbled upon Lisa Lamb at the Cecil Hotel, the Lisa Lamb, sorry, at the at this hotel and saw an opportunity and killed her and covered it up by dumping her in the water tank on the roof of the building. Some things that correspond to that, the black boot that we see in the video that's gone unidentified, the fact that she was in the water tower or naked, her clothes were nearby, but the tank itself was shut. So, like, it just doesn't make any sense. And from what they were saying, like, you have to shut open and shut it from the outside. Like, why would they make it openable from the inside? That's making sense. So the idea well, is that she opened it, jumped in, and the her act of jumping in shook it and closed the lid. But isn't it also possible that the killer just opened up the thing, threw her in, and shut it? If there was a killer, yeah. I mean, if we look at the evidence, right, she's acting weird, which she could be on drugs. Sure. Maybe. Could be a, they said psychotic break. Maybe I can't rule that out, but so the, she's the in thing an, I go ahead. I was going to say the thing that I find frustrating about the whole psychotic break is that she was only taking medication for bipolar disorder right. and depression, which, um, a psychotic break isn't as common with bipolar disorder. Dispo- I mean, being bi- bipolar, you have extremes and emotional directions. Yes, but I don't. I I don't know. That just doesn't sit right with me when right. people say that. Yeah, I I would agree with you. And <clears throat> if we look at the area, right? High poverty, high homelessness, and um, you know, those populations, not trying to judge or anything, but sex work does come up in those situations because it's the oldest profession and it does generate funds, right? Right. So the Cecil Hotel is also right there. It makes it a prime opportunity to sell <clears throat> you, sell and use drugs and uh, do sex work. The populations that are targeted by cops that turn serial killer, security guards that turn serial killer, or serial killers that want to present themselves as either a cop or a security guard target sex workers and homeless populations. Like It's not a stretch to, to wonder if one of those kind of individuals use this opportunity thinking Elisa Lamb was one of those population in that population one way or the other and <laughs> didn't realize that it was, you know, a student visiting LA that had ties to family that would miss her and all those things. Um, and it's not as though it would be a stretch of the imagination either for a member of the LAPD to be involved in murdering people. He or she viewed as less than human 
and then covering it all up when they figured out that it wasn't the target wasn't someone that no one would miss quote unquote right just sprinkle some cocaine on them yeah right i mean the lapd's had a horrible track record with that kind of stuff they've also been uh have had white supremacist gangs uh identified within their own police department mm-hmm. so is it really a stretch to say hey there's this black boot on the side of this image she goes missing there was obviously somebody there but no one ever finds any evidence could it potentially have been purposefully removed to cover for something or cover for someone you know there's even um there's a great show on hulu the case that haunts me which is a collection of canadian murder cases i believe uh they're canadian but a collection of murder cases that the investigator says this is the case that still to this day i can't get over in one of those cases the abbreviated version because i know we're getting close here um is that the uh clerical assistant for a police department disappears is found dead in her trunk in the parking lot of the police station. The cops are trying to pin it on the boyfriend and it, the case just never goes anywhere, never goes anywhere. Then they all, oh, they, it's this drug dealer over here, but it never goes anywhere. And it becomes a cold case. Decades later, this guy that is telling his story about this is the case that gets him gets the case he starts digging into it and the officer on the scene, the officer that takes the evidence, the officer that investigates the boyfriend, the officer that investigates the uh, drug dealer, the officer that interrogates the roommate, the officer that gives him the case, the officer that gives him all of the evidence is all the same guy. Which is slightly odd in and of itself, more so that he's the chief of police. Why is the chief of police so involved in this case, right? Right. So he begins connecting some dots, puts everything in a, in a box that he keeps outside of the police department, gives it to a priest because he gets cancer and he knows he can't finish the case. And he says when the right cop comes along, you need to give him the evidence. He dies a couple decades later. This is where this guy gets the case, right? So he's like, why is this cop so involved? Why did this cop this detective give it to this priest and didn't want anybody to have the evidence? He looks at the evidence and all of the evidence is pointing to the police chief. And he's like, whoa, I can't just walk into a precinct and, and blame this. You know, the guy's like retiring, but. He's still the chief, you know? Right. So he, he's like, I got to be very careful with this. And subpoenas the, he's like, Hey, I really need to take a look at that evidence. You know, I just, I think there might be one little piece I need to finally get the drug dealer. So the guy falls for it, gives him the evidence. He finds out that all of the DNA evidence, this guy was supposed to send to the lab He instead sends it to himself. He sends it to the lab, but care of himself and never actually gets the tests run. 
So he actually runs the test and finds out that the DNA evidence proves that the friggin' chief of police killed the girl. And they find out that he killed the girl because she found out that he was working with the drug dealer to squeeze all the other drug dealers out of the game. So he would arrest the other drug dealers, basically. So this guy was the only show in town and he provided money is direct kickbacks to the chief of police. And in return, the chief of police protected him. The secretary found out that the drug dealer was doing things that he shouldn't have been doing, reported him and then caught the chief of police letting it slide. She made a stink. She was going to make a stink. So he killed her. And, uh, threatened the roommate because she found she was there when they were doing it and said, if you tell anybody, we'll kill you too. And it turned out that uh, trigger warning for SA, trigger warning, that the chief of police, a rookie police officer under uh, promise of death and directly being forced to do so, and the drug dealer all raped the girl before they killed her and then raped the roommate and threatened to kill her if she ever talked. And this whole thing was buried for over 30 years. So it's like, well, when you're in a position of power, you get that privilege apparently. Right. But, and we'd love to say that that is a very unique case that, you know, that's the exception, not the rule. But, the truth is stranger than fiction half the time, right? And it's funny how our fiction, when somebody's like, oh, I'm going to think up this thing that nobody's ever thought of, right? And we write this fiction and then we realize, you know what? That sounds a little true. And mm-hmm. we find out that it's actually happened before. You know what I mean? Like, yep. how many horror movies or action movies or suspense or thriller movies do we have out there? where the killer or the bad guy ends up being the cop ends up being the fireman ends up being the security guard. Right. There's even the fame for a second that I thought you were describing bad boys right. or, you know, lethal weapon. Yeah. And there's even that infamous case, uh, where the security guard at, that wants to be a cop goes, is bouncing this, uh, music festival finds the bomb reports it to the ATF and the FBI get, helps get everybody away from the device so they can, you know, get rid of it safely is credited with saving hundreds of lives. And as the investigation wraps up, they've realized that he's the one that put the bomb there in the first place. He wanted to be a hero. Right. So I'm just saying with the present, the obvious presence of somebody else there, because we can see the, the, footed you know the the boot there which obviously has a foot in it comes oh, coming back around to lisa lamb yeah uh yeah. comes into frame leaves frame she's never heard from again and they can never find any evidence and never know what happened i'm just saying i would not be at all surprised if it was a police officer involved so and I know it's a theory people don't like, 
and they want to just chop this up to a, a suicide from a depressed girl that was uh, bipolar and leave it at that. But the it's just a lot of weird surrounding the case. So there's a couple things. I know we're running short here, but or running long, I guess I should say. But um, the horror community say that she was playing the elevator game. Okay. Okay. Um, it's where this, uh, I don't know if you know what the elevator game is, but for anybody that doesn't know, um, it's a series of, you have to have a, I think it has to be at least a 10 or 12 floor building. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to go to certain floors in a certain order and it's supposed to transport you to some other world. Okay. The way the the system is, the numbers, the way the the order of floors, it's all supposed to take you to a different place. You encounter different things throughout the different floors that you bounce through. Um, now, be known that the elevator game is a creepypasta. Right. But you know damn well that even though it's just some fictional story put out there on the internet, people are going to do something like that. And if enough, I feel like enough, but if enough belief is put into something like that, there's going to be something real to it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to down you on thinking that it could very well be a cop because it could very well be a cop. The, the, if, because if it was somebody from Skid Row, a homeless person or something like that, somebody from uh, living homeless or something like that, in that 56 block of, you know, tents out there, they wouldn't think to hide themselves from a, a, a security camera as well as that. I wouldn't think anyway. Right. They wouldn't give two shits. They go, they get put in prison. They got a, they got a home. Right. A better place than a tent. Um, an officer would think their security cameras in the, the elevator. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I don't know if you saw, but in the Discord, I did post a picture mm-hmm. of the water tank that Elisa Lamb was in. Um, they had to cut that that water tank that she was in open so that they could actually pull her out. Right. I don't know if you mentioned that either. I did not. Actually. Okay. Because um, the opening that, you actually, that actually opens up at the top is too small to get anything actually in there to pull her out. Um, and you mentioned, I know you mentioned her clothes were mm. next to her. They were floating in the water next to her. They had a sandy particulate that was found on the clothing. Um, there was also her room key that was with her still. And there was something else that was with her. I can't think of what it was, but all this stuff was still with her. A homeless person might, if they found the, a room key, a hotel room key on the person they just murdered, would probably take that room key and go and dig around in the room for any sort of possessions that they could possibly take. Right. I mean, they just murdered a person. Make it worth it. <clears throat> Not to sound morbid or anything, but no, I mean- realistically thinking, if you did that, you're going to try and make it worth it. You're not just going to kill a person to kill a person unless you're that far off the edge. There's, there's also, um, interestingly, the video has been removed from YouTube for violating TOS, but, 
Um, according to this report uh, by Truth TV, the police also discovered surveillance footage of a suspect dressed in tactical gear. The person was dressed to the nines from the vest, pants, boots, and even a helmet, along with a hammer during the whole Elisa Lamb disappearance. Well, see, like, okay, so that makes sense as to for an officer, like, being a part of it. But when they pulled the body out of the water, there was no physical damage done to the body before the death. Nope. According to an autopsy conducted by... Was the department the county coroner that is directly tied to the police department? Okay, so that very well could just be covered up. Then you're right. Not to be conspiratorial, but it's not no. the first time it's happened either. So no, yeah, definitely not. I mean that that's something to make sense. But why why are none of the smaller like you know the the news sites that you and I get our news from not Fox not CBS yeah. not ABC not CNN none of those stuff we don't go to our we don't get our news from those stations so why aren't any of the stations that we get our news from like bringing any of this up that's the curious thing um aside from the fact that it's you know an old an old news thing yeah. but it would still be something that somebody i think would have like interest in trying to help uncover because it is still a mystery as to this well, person I mean, dying who did this and everything just last year in february netflix even made a documentary on it and there are they feature like 20 or 15 or 20 um sleuths as they call themselves like cyber sleuths still trying to solve the damn thing like people still care about this um somebody's got something somewhere It'll eventually come to light, but I just, I'm not buying the official. The official just doesn't make sense to me. It's plausible, but it just doesn't have that ring of truth to it. Like it just sounds like at least part of it has been BS to a degree. So that's something that I, that I hate that we can't trust the officials. Yeah. Like we're supposed to. Now, Um, an interesting thing I do want to add based on what you said about the elevator game um is where is it god damn it i just saw it yes um so the night stalker was on the 14th floor right and Trying to find it again. Trying to find what her floor was on. I found one that said she was on the 14th floor as well. But if she was playing the elevator game, it's interesting that it would be the 14th floor. Um, because hotels don't have a 13th floor labeled. It goes 12, 14. So 14 would actually be 13. Right. So, I mean, that's part of the elevator game. Yeah. Right. So she's playing the elevator game. If that's what happened, she's playing the elevator game. This is taking place on the 13th floor. 
the 13th floor of this specific hotel is also where a serial killer was staying while he killed 14 people. Okay, so That's if it was a serial crazy. if it was a serial killer then um why would the police and the coroner all of them try and hide anything from it happening? Well, if it was a serial killer, I don't think that that would make sense, but if it's a serial killer tied to law enforcement, whether it was a cop that was killing, you know, cuz back then um what is it like subject other than human or something like that? It's a derogatory term that used to be used by cops that basically they'd be like soth or soby or whatever the, the acronym they decided to use was. And it basically meant we don't need to investigate this case because it's the person in being the person that we would have to investigate the murder of isn't human to us. So a lot of okay. homeless people and sex workers, the police just wouldn't even investigate it. They'd be like, oh, it's not even a human. So it's entirely possible that if the police received a report prior to the identification of that this girl was missing, that they wouldn't have even investigated it because it was by Skid Row. They wouldn't have cared. Right. So even if it was a cop, there's a, a decent chance that it's like, well, as long as he's taken out the subhumans, who cares? mentality from the police department yeah potentially not saying that that's exactly what happened Um, no i mean there's a lot of potential things you know we could bounce this around for the next hour Mm -hmm. now there was another one um yeah so this part is very strange i don't know what to think of it even when I it's on the Netflix documentary as well. This part of it, I have no, it it hurts my brain, but I can't figure out how it would even work. Um, but the tuberculosis theory is that her death is tied to the tuberculosis outbreak. Um, and the reason for that is that around the time Elisa went missing, there was a tuberculosis outbreak in LA, specifically downtown LA and Skid Row, which is where the hotel is, right? Um, They suggest that Elisa could have been sent to LA to test out the new medication for TB, which the behavior up to uh, her death, those weird motions she's making and everything could be a side effect of experimental medication. Um, or that she was a biological weapon sent to L.A., quote-unquote. That's a little out there. Um, in the Netflix documentary, they also discuss how Elisa studied at the University of Columbia, which has a well-known tuberculosis research center. Well, at the time, she was trying to enroll in the University of British Columbia. She wasn't actually fully enrolled in it, is what I, what I read. Okay. That's a fair point. Uh, the But the most shocking part of this theory is that the test being used to detect tuberculosis at the time she disappeared was called the Lam Elisa test. Really? Yes. 
It is L-A-M hyphen E-L-I-S-A. Her name is E-L-I-S-A-L-A-M. You're right. Just send that to me. Um, I don't know how to take that information or process it. To say that she was a biological weapon, that's just so much of a stretch to me that I, I can't put anything to that. But she is studying. She studied at the university or was trying to be enrolled at the university, whatever the case may be. <clears throat> they have a well-known TB research center. <clears throat> the test that they're using seems to be named after her. Um, and then she just, this whole thing happens. Uh, it is important to know, as they say here, uh, this is never proven to be anything more than a coincidence. At the time of her death, the official autopsy ruled that she did not have tuberculosis. Um, however, I would say that if we're saying there was any type of cover-up, whether it was police or this university and this tuberculosis testing thing, um, the autopsy obviously you'd be bribing or threatening that person to say one thing or the other, or if you're testing, you know, experimental tuberculosis things, maybe it worked. And that's why she doesn't have TB. Those arguments <clears throat> could be made, but <clears throat> um, I'm just not sure how to take it, but it is very strange that her name is Elisa lamb. And the test is lamb Elisa. That, yeah, like, and them trying to sit there and say it's just a coincidence, that's... No, what? How is that just... Co the coincidence is a lamb... Uh, mm -mm, no, what? The other interesting part is it's not like... So a common misconception is that this poor girl goes missing and then they run the Lam Elisa test. In actuality, they ran the Lam Elisa test days before she even disappeared. So you have this girl, Lisa Lamb, trying to get into the school that has this TB project. They name the TB project Lamb Elisa. And a few days later, she goes missing and is distributing and is um, having these, or what do you call it? Uh, demonstrating these very bizarre mannerisms and bizarre behavior for those days leading up to her disappearance. Like it's dude, if it's a coincidence, it is the biggest coincidence of all. Like one of the biggest coincidences ever. Lamb Elisa is actually an actual th thing. Right. But it's, it's just so weird though. Lipo or Arabino manin enzyme linked immunosorbent assay in diagnostics of childhood tuberculosis. It's an actual, an actual test. That that is a coincidence. But the fact, but the matter is the, the but the part that they are stressing there, right, is the Lamalisa test, right was brand new when the days before that she was the days before she disappeared. 
It had just right. it had and just come out, and that per- that particular test, right? And just because, like the breakdown of it, that makes it the acronym. We don't always name things based purely on an acronym that we pull out of the scientific terms, right? Or the biomarkers. We don't always do that. Um, but one could argue that in a conspiratorial mindset, trying to play devil's advocate here, because like I said, I don't know how to take this one, um, but trying to play devil's advocate for this not being a coincidence it may be possible that uh, because we know that Asian Americans have faced a lot of hatred throughout the years, right? That they saw an opportunity to test this TB outbreak mechanic on somebody that they deemed to be less than or wouldn't be missed. And they figured a out of town, Asian prospecting student could be utilized for that. And the tongue in cheek, um, like rub it in your face. We're getting away with it is to name the test after her. Now that's very, being very conspiratorially minded and just trying to play devil's advocate, but the, it, and I understand like what you're saying that it's, it's from the linked immunosorbent assay is how they get Elisa. It's completely possible that it's just a coincidence and that's why they named it that, but it is very, very it just on the face value. You're, you're just like your brain starts to hurt a little bit. Yeah. At face value, I guess the Elisa test is actually as old as 1985. Okay. Um, and lamb is simply lipoarabino manin. So it's like a modification to an existing test. Yeah. So lamb is just the specific, a specific, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I can't think of what how what to say. Uh, but Elisa, yeah, is enzyme linked immunosorbent assay but that's been since 1985 that's a test a screening literally for it was first employed for hiv in 1985 okay yeah it was just one of the out there portions of this story that i thought i'd mentioned and i never really knew what to how to take it but yeah, no, like, it's definitely just... at face value. The fact that you know <clears throat> you see that, and then you see you know Elisa Lamb die within days of this test being there at you know the University of Columbia. That's <clears throat> that's crazy. Yeah, it's and you know, truth is stranger than fiction. It could all just be one big coincidence. Absolutely. My money is on if if she did not commit suicide, that the person seen in the surveillance footage is a likely suspect, which I think is fair to say, Um, Mm -hmm. in that 
surveillance footage supposedly showing somebody dressed in SWAT-like attire should have been more thoroughly investigated if for no other reason than to rule it out. Right. But just the way she died, the strange mannerisms, it's just, is it possible that she did it? Sure. Anything is possible. You put your mind to it. But it's like jumpers, right? The people that jump off bridges to land in the water, like the uh, Hudson or the one in San Francisco Bay. They don't take their clothes off. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. So if you're going to throw yourself into a water tank to kill yourself, are you going to take your clothes off? And if you're going to take your clothes off, are you going to put the clothes in the water? Because then you may as well just be wearing them. Like, it's odd. It... The whole thing's weird. Like there, there's it no is, way it around. It is weird. It. Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> At the end of the day, a very young woman with a bright future lost her life, and it's a tragedy that we don't know the answer to, and that's all we can really say. <clears throat> we can speculate and all that stuff, but <clears throat> um, yeah, that's just. It's a very sad story overall. Um, and I hope that at some point um, somebody finds a little something extra and we can actually understand what, what happened, no matter what the answer actually is. Yeah. Maybe we should become part-time investigators for cold cases. You know, I, I would absolutely love digging into cold cases. Maybe we should make that a special episode or something. Cold cases is a man. There's some doozies out there. Oh, I know. Cause I, I've done the same thing. I like, I like digging around in that stuff. I love watching cold case files and like, not the, uh, like, um, drama ridden no. versions, but like the actual yeah. cold case files with like the real detectives were like, yeah, we uh, got handed this case. We had no evidence. And then, you know, we uh, yeah. found an old box in an attic somewhere that said Jim Bob might have could have done it. And uh, we went over there and said, we think you did it. And he said, yeah, I did it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> like finding those little clues that could possibly like spark something new in a different direction stuff like that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. We're almost at three hours, man. All right. Yeah, I think... um, Oh, where's my thing? I do think that uh, that about does it for us on this episode, yeah? Uh, I think so. We both hope (laughs) you enjoyed the discussion and our um, little sidetracks we took down the rabbit hole of different things as well. Oh, there's nothing little about our sidetracks at all. So, if you would, please join us next week for another episode. Uh, as we said before, Tuesdays, 9 Eastern, uh, 8 Central. Uh, but in the meantime, do join us over on Twitch. 
with Carl, K-A-R-L-B-A-N-N-S-O-N-R, and me, D-A-R-K-W-I-C-A-H-P-I. Uh, Twitter, Discord, TikTok, and Hover. We're we're all over the place. Yep. And, and uh, uh, for my Hover and my uh, YouTube, it's just TTV Carl Bansonier. But you can find me just by typing in Carl Bansonier as well if you need to. Uh, all of our previous episodes will be available on Anchor.fm, Amazon Prime Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and Spotify. We do hope you join our community on Twitch and Discord. And again, we do have a discord for the podcast so you can listen to us live you can provide questions feedback or uh requests or suggestions for new episodes or to join us as a guest directly after a little bit of vetting uh if you go to our uh, twitter feeds you can find the link to that discord server our twatter Thank you for tuning in. We look forward to having many more discussions because obviously we absolutely love having our discussions. We've gone on for three hours. So, so many tangents in it. Um, make sure to join us uh, and spread the word. Share share us. Let us let your friends and family know. And uh, just so you know, you are valid and you are worthy. And as always, thank you all so much. We'll see you on the next episode. Skull. Good night.